As we inaugurate the sixth season from our newly established studio, I invited Jonathan Cuscos to be my interlocutor as he is an authority in the realm of security and a newly minted entrepreneur to boot. The ensuing conversation veers into esoteric technical jargon as we broach topics ranging from white box and black box testing, the defining characteristics of an adept hacker, the issue of security charlatans, security leadership versus security management, amongst many other topics. Instead of breaking the rhythm of our conversation with frequent explicatory intermissions, we chose to maintain the conversation's fluidity and leave the interpretation to our listeners. While parts of this dialogue may challenge many, it offers a rare glimpse into the unique lexicon of hackers for those intrigued. Though portions of our exchange may seem obscure to some, for those keen on gaining insight into the nuanced communication of hackers, this conversation should prove valuable. And with that, please meet Jonathan Cuscos. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show, Season 6, Episode 1 with Cuscos. Jonathan Cuscos, how are you, sir? Doing well, buddy. How are you today? Good, good. Uh, as our intrepid viewers might notice, we are in a brand new studio that was... And like literally last week was just paint and ground. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty today. A lot of work's been done. Yeah, we uh, put a lot of work into it this over this last week. Um, pretty intense. Um, still a lot of work to be done. I think we got to kind of, a lot of things are kind of put up, but like they could fall over right away. <laughs> it's on the way, right? Don't I think touch anything. Everyone working from home has that very carefully curated <laughs> view where this shot is good. And if the camera were to ever pan like this, it's just like, oh, panic. Uh, just guys in boxers. And <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't pan down. <laughs> what a nightmare. There's some really funny videos of the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, my God. It's so funny. Um, I feel bad for them. You know, because they're just being normal people in their homes, right? <laughs> That's true. How did that treat you, by the way? And we had the few uh, years of you know, how everyone personally handled it. Well, I've worked from home for 20 plus years already. There's really no difference. I was on the road a lot, but really my, my office was always my house probably since the... I would say early 2000s, I had always worked from home. There's no reason to go in the office. I mean, occasionally to go visit people or whatever, or attend an occasional meeting or something, but why? Like right, everything's behind sure. a computer. I can do the equivalent of Zoom calls back then, you know, or just physical calls or whatever and never really saw a need for it. So f for the most part, I would say it was a nothing burger for me until about, I would say a year into it, I was just getting really, really bored at home. Like I just gotta get out of here. Yeah. Like, just go to the bar and meet some people that I don't know. And, you know, just kind of expand my wings a little bit. How about you? Well, we hunkered down pretty hard. Um, but the only thought that I really had in my mind at the time was like all those years of playing video games as a kid, like we've been training for this moment. So I personally <laughs> thrived throughout it. It was, it was no problem. It's like I get to get left alone with my several monitors and multiple computers doing the things that I love. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, obviously the pandemic was not great, but yeah. whereas most people were going stir crazy, I was getting really productive. Yeah. Well, I mean, me too for the first year. <laughs> and then I'm there. like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. You know, just, you know, just trying new recipes and like, there's only so much you can do. Right. <laughs> you did start, you have the sourdough phase? I'm oh sure yeah. Everyone oh, did. everyone goes through it. <laughs> <laughs> no, life's mostly back to normal now. And I think yeah. for the better. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Let's not have another one of those, okay? Fair enough. All right. So where you and I, we, I don't know, we've probably known each other for 10 years or something? I think just about. Um, I, I, through the White Hat days, um, I started in 2011. And so that's when I would have first met you. So yeah, okay. Just over a decade. Yeah, yeah, okay. Usually. All right, so tw 10, 11, 12 yeah. years, somewhere in there. So when I first met you, you were 
I would say probably the best person on the TRC, the Threat Research Center. It was tied between you and Zach, I would say. You guys were both very, very good. I would happily hand that over to Zach. Uh, uh, you were both I think very he, well, he good. He gave me a lot of the foundational knowledge that even allowed me to be competitive. So mm-hmm. if there was a competition, it's because Zach trained me. So okay, we'll, all put, right. we'll put that to him. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> okay, so maybe one and a half. Yeah. <laughs> um, so first of all, let's, let's talk about it. Like, how yeah. did you get into InfoSec? Like, how did that all happen? Oh man. Okay. So I would be foolish to not say that it was mostly luck and I really fell into it. Um, around the time where I joined and started learning about cybersecurity, you know, I'm not one of those people who really like sought this out as a kid growing up. The industry had kind of already well formed by the time that I fell into it. Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is that I was, I believe, 24, 25 and it had taken me seven years to get a four-year computer science degree. Oh, wow. Mostly, was most, that video games? <laughs> no, that was um, not really knowing how to study mm. and not really seeing it as a discipline to practice. Um, it clicked when I started treating like math like music. Um, I'm a percussionist, and that always came naturally to me. Naturally, you have to also put in the time to get really good at it. And once I started seeing math problems, like, oh, you don't just do the 10, 20 problems that the teacher gives it gives to you. You do them until you understand the fundamental concept. Once that clicked, everything went fine, but it didn't happen until a bit later in life for me. Mm. But the reality is that I was just not a good developer. Um, really C minus in most of my classes. I could get the job done. I could get a prototype up for whatever we needed to do, but it was never really scalable and just wasn't quite putting up the academic uh, accolades that my peers were. So the reality is that when I graduated, you know, I'm applying everywhere for computer science jobs, for programming jobs at some of the worst companies too, just anyone to see if I could get in. And I wasn't passing the interviews. White Hat Security had opened its first remote office in Houston, Texas, and was looking for people who knew how to code, knew how the internet worked, and wanted to become good at hacking. Well, that's something that I had kind of already done a little bit, but professionally and for very selfish reasons, like learning how to hack video games. You know, it was like hex editing back then. Very simple. You find a memory address, it's gold or money or ability power-ups, whatever. You change that value in the game. You look for the diff in that memory address versus other things. That was essentially hacking. Um, And it's funny, when I think about that and I think back to the first thing that I actually hacked, I remember getting Japanese PlayStation games. And we'd have an American PlayStation, an American PlayStation game. You can pop the lid up, pop a hanger in there. Turn the, turn the system on, the disc would start spinning, and it would stop. And at that moment, you could pull it out, put in the Japanese disc, and the game would load. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it wouldn't. And I realize now that was a bootloader bypass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me you know, a few years into this career to understand what actually happened and kind of reflect back on that moment. Right. But I ended up falling into whiteout security because I passed the bare minimum to get into it, and I was hungry for any sort of success that I could find. Just hungrier than everyone else. Well, well, going back for a second, just because I thought it was interesting. um, You said that you weren't a very good programmer, but you were were able to get the job done. There's this word, uh, there's very few of them in the English language. It's called a Janus word. And Janus words are words that mean two completely different things. Okay. The word hacker in our context that you're normally, you and I would normally use the word, means somebody who's good at breaking computers. And the other meaning, which is what you were at the time, is somebody who's really bad at generating code and they hack <laughs> the code together. Uh, so you are actually both of those things, which is kind of interesting. You know, it's funny. So um, I'm the first person in the generation of my family to pursue higher education. And I went into computer science because growing up, my family said, hey, you're good at computers. You should go to school for computers. 
no one knowing that computer science as an academic des- discipline um, is a little bit math heavy. It's a little bit logic heavy. Mm-hmm. You really need to run through those ropes a little bit and understand how it works. And I just kind of fell into it. Mm-hmm. Did the best that I could. We scrambled a little bit. Ended up finding myself in a world where, okay, now instead of having to write code all day, every day, I'm looking at someone else's and trying to understand how to manipulate it. That came easy. And it also happened to intersect with the period of my life where I was very hungry for advancement and kind of like legitimacy as, I guess, an adult, a young adult. You know, I'm 25. I'm graduating way too late for a four-year degree. My peers are doing the same thing with PhDs and masters. And what are we going to do with this time? Not to mention the very real reality that there's a lot of student loan debt that comes along with this, mm-hmm. which ties into bug bounties later on <laughs> um, as that industry was kind of formulating up Did around you, uh, 2012, get rid of your debt? <laughs> I, I paid off six figures of student loans in, in through, about 30 seconds through <laughs> moonlighting bug bounties while working at White House. Okay. All right, all right. And so, well, like the first couple of years, that's why I got so good so fast, not because I was smarter or better than other people. I just put in more time. Mm-hmm. Whereas most people were clocking out at 5 p.m., I was taking on the extra assessments. I was staying up till midnight, looking at bug bounties and understanding kind of what was going on through that space. And so I just put in a lot of time in those three years and the momentum kind of carried from there. Mm-hmm. So the time when I met you. Yeah, right. Um, all downhill from there. Uh, <laughs> so, so when you were at White Hat, you were more or less in charge of one of the largest hacker armies on the planet. I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And that playground that we had there, just the ability to freely check out one of a handful of thousands of websites to freely pen test exposed us to a lot of technologies very early in our careers. And so, whereas most other people are maybe assessing one website every month too, maybe as the contract comes their way, we're doing three to five a week, depending on which team we're on. I was on the team who was performing bake-offs against other security assessment firms naturally the best vulnerability wins. So mm-hmm. high adrenaline, high pressure, high stakes, you really have to want that to thrive in that environment. And that's where I got to practice. It exposes you to a lot of patterns that I think you'll, it'll take a lot of time to see if you don't have a big data set to put it against. Like for instance, that ability to determine that, man, I really think there's SQL injection here. And if I just hammer and hammer, man, it, it's here. <laughs> but if you're not careful, you start that on a Monday, it's Thursday, the assessment is due Friday, and you haven't done the other 80% of the application. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to get some wisdom in the space to realize, okay, this is a rabbit hole. Maybe something's here, maybe not. I need to move on. Mm-hmm. And that really takes a little bit of wisdom to figure out. And you're not going to get that if you're just doing one pen test a month, because mm-hmm. it'll take you 10 years to do what we were doing in three months, six months. Mm-hmm. So describe that feeling. I mean, I, I know what it feels like, but I don't think necessarily a lot of the audience knows what that feeling is when you're looking at something and yeah. you, you know it's vulnerable to this and you don't know it, but you know it. So I actually have a great story that that segues into. Mm-hmm. So the very first SQL injection that I found is on a website that delivers pizza. I can say that. And most of us had used this thing. I found it in the office literally like Thursday afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, I'm working on it. I find SQL injection and I am like running down the cubicles, high-fiving people. Ooh, it happened. Like it's real. This isn't academic. It's not theoretical. I've read about this. I've practiced for this and here it is live. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's all the credit card data. Oh, there's people's first names and last names. And that was an interesting moment where I was both excited and a little bit scared. Now where that gets interesting is that night I just happened to like make my way back home, visit my mother. And she's like, cool, like work's going well, like let's order a pizza. And I watch her go to that same website (laughs) and use the exact same functionality that I had exploited earlier that day. And like 
just this light bulb kind of clicked in my head where I was like, when something bad happens, when a, when a breach happens and breach having legal implications, aside from just getting hacked or getting popped or database creds being leaked, the real victims are people. Mm-hmm. It's not the company. I mean, the, sure, the company is affected, but the first names, last names, credit card information that's leaked, that's everyday people who have given some entity their trust, whether they earned it or not. And they have a responsibility to fix these things. And so I kind of make sure that that's my North Star today. When we're identifying vulnerabilities, when we're finding out how to exploit things and fix them, you're literally one in a million. And you are doing good for other people who will likely never know it. That being said, we're in like a highly paid industry. So you get compensated for the time. Let's let's not pretend like we're not. Mm -hmm. But you are doing good that other people will never really recognize that you're protecting them. And that happens because they are giving their trust to websites just to use the product. And there's never like an explicit thing saying, hey, you're going to trust us that we're going to do the right thing, right? That conversation never happens. People just want to use Twitter. They just Mm want to use Facebook. Yeah. Whatever the site may be. And so you give that trust away freely. And what happens when it goes south? Uh, Free identity theft protection. Well, that's a a big nothing. Well, that's how they make money. They don't lose money on those things. That's actually one of my biggest beefs with this whole industry is, Usually when things go terribly wrong, usually the company will have about a, about a less than a 10% stock dip, but only for about 10 days. Mm-hmm. And then they will make money on the, on the flip side because they sell this, uh, this protection you're talking about, the credit protection, which is an upsell. They make money on the deal. And then they have all these backlinks pointing to them. So they have better SEO and they can send an oops email later on, which you know gives people a 30% discount. So they start shopping there again. Oh yep. They actually make money. They don't lose money. Um, and that was one of my biggest, like, I think that we as an industry have kind of forgotten what we actually exist in. This whole business climate that we exist in, we're just like, vulns matter. Well, yeah, they matter, but I, they, they live in context of how business and people function. And, uh, and so what you said about growing up and, you know, kind of getting a better sense of this and this affects people and that's, that's really should be the North star, but unfortunately just isn't like people are much more about the bottom line. I mean, some people are just there for the job and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I try to surround myself with people who kind of have a similar philosophical view on like why, what we do, why, what, what we're doing matters. Like at the end of the day, where does this connect with humans? Where does this connect with the business? And sometimes that's important too. Um, but if something bad happens, who is really going to feel hurt for it? Who's going to feel the pain? Is it just the business's checking account or is it their customers? And then why is it their customers? Did they deserve that? Not always. Yeah. Usually not. Rarely ever. I mean, really very rarely. Um, but to to go back to crypto and then they definitely deserve (laughs) it. (laughs) But to go back to that original feeling, you know, it's an adrenaline rush. It feels very exciting. Um, it kind of validates all the headaches you might've gone through to get to that point. And then the converse of that is when you're working on a particular website or server or host or whatever, and there's vulnerabilities everywhere that you look. So you're going to spend more time just writing up the report than actually getting deeper into it. Yeah. And, and I've seen this before too. You have a week to work on an application. You start spidering it just to kind of understand how would a real customer use this? What, what are the situations that an actual user is going to face? And you just see the red flag after red flag after red flag. I mean, you can often know in just a, website URL if SQL injection is going to be there sometimes just based on the structure of it Mm -hmm. if there's a parameter called order by you're just like here we go (laughs) and it happens um and on those particular things you know I've had situations where I've turned in that report and they take the website offline Mm -hmm. and so now I'm sitting there and I have to be like well okay 
not exploitable anymore, not mm-hmm. exploitable, and just hope it doesn't come back up. Right. Because that's where we kind of live in the world of security assessments when you're providing an assessment to a customer. Their point in time often. I'd be, I'd be curious how you feel about this uh, ethically. So once upon a time, uh, we would basically hand people these really terrible assessments. Oh, I mean, we would just beat them up. It was really, really bad. And we'd lose the customer because they'd just be like, this is, you guys were trying to hurt us. See, like, <laughs> like this is, this is, this is offensive almost like how bad we look in this report. But that's, that, I mean, that was the true situation, but it just didn't look good. So after that, we lost a couple of customers and we're like, well, we got to figure out some other way to do this. So we'd give them a report and we'd say, um, within the contract, we'd say, you pay us 99% of the contract for the rough draft. And then you'll pay us the remaining 1% for the final draft. And so we'd hand them a, something that's draft report, draft, like big draft, everything, everything's draft, 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 draft. And we'd hand it to them. And it's the same report that I give them at the end, right? Just beat them up. They look awful. I'm like, okay, Tell me when you want the to me to deliver the report because it hasn't been delivered yet. And they'd always go just, no, thank you. We're happy with the draft. <laughs> and so they'd never get the final report or they'd wait three months to go fix everything and come back and like, okay, we'd like the final report now. I'm like, okay, here you go. I don't think there's ethically anything to off with that. I mean, what you're essentially doing is setting expectations and you're giving them an opportunity to kind of see where they want to land in that conversation. If at the end of the day it gets fixed, that's better than a whole lot of other situations out there. That's kind of how I saw it. I, I was, I could sleep at night with that design. Yeah. I mean, you get to give your honest opinions. Now there is a tactful way to say your baby is ugly. And that's what a lot of pen testers and security assessments, their job is. We're taking a dev team's work that they put their heart and soul into under various circumstances, various pressure points, often with security not being part of the design. And then we're saying, oh, that's wrong in this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, and the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. And nothing's more condescending by seeing a report where someone says, this can be fixed simply by, mm-hmm. like, why does it have to be simply by? It's, <laughs> that, that, that's just like an unnecessary jab. Yeah. But those little micro jabs happen all over the place if you're not cognizant of it. And I think that's one of the problems that we face with you know younger security engineers they're coming in, they're learning the ropes, they're kind of learning this system of, I identify a risk, I communicate it to the stakeholder, and then we're gonna see what they're gonna do. Do they care about it? Do they tell us it's really a medium when it was a high? Why does that matter? There's a way to tactfully have that conversation and we don't do ourselves any favors in that space. I think back to all the times where I've joined a new company and I've started working on a new with a new team and they want to have no conversation with security at all because all of the conversations thus far have been just sour, a little bit uh, blame oriented. Mm-hmm. Why would they want to work with us? Um, so more people really need to work in a value provided way such that we are providing remediations. How do I put this? So far as just giving them the code for the fix, like making it as easy as possible mm-hmm. instead or of just ideally doing it for them if you could. Right. But then that also brings in a liability aspect. Absolutely. If the security team is saying, here's the, the PR to fix the thing it gets accepted into production and then an issue happens there immediately. And, and even if it's not your fault, they'll still blame you. <laughs> immediately. The head of engineering is going to say InfoSec is a cost center and yep. it snowballs that way. Yeah. Yep. So back to the uh, hacker army. No, no, no. I, I, I think that was a useful tangent. Um, how, when, when you're bringing people up through the ranks, you know, you had the opportunity to train a lot of people from nothing effectively. I mean, maybe they had a little bit of programming experience or maybe they had done something in security once and had a vague interest in it. Yeah, if that. Right, right. So how did you take somebody from effectively nothing to being a 
uh, enterprise worthy hacker or Vuln finder? Like what is the process you had to go through to do that? I think a lot of it is in the mentality that what we're doing isn't really rocket science at the end of the day. It might be a little um, hyped up in the media, but hacking is really no different than debugging something or being a quality assurance tester in a sense. That's, I, I say that very often as well. Because that's the reality. Um, a very glorified QA. <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, if you're doing QA and you find a way how something breaks, the only thing that we're doing is saying, so what can we do with that? Is that bad? I uh, think about all the time someone has said, hey, is this an exploit? Can you exploit it? Oh, yes or no. Well, there's, <laughs> there's your answer. It really is that simple. Is something vulnerable? Can you exploit it? So I try to not gate people based on if they know how to write reverse shells in Python. More, do they look at the phone and think, this is what my phone can do? Or do they think, what can I make that do? Mm-hmm. And I think that concept really... You don't have to be tech-minded for that. You don't have to grow up attached to a computer at your hip to have that sort of mindset that kind of exists everywhere. Um, and so we hired a lot of people who, some of them had computer science backgrounds, some of them hacking backgrounds. Some delivered pizzas. Some came from a customer service background. And those customer service people write the best vulnerability ports, by the way, because mm-hmm. their communication skills are just a little bit better, in my opinion. <laughs> um, it's like bug bounty triagers. Yeah. Great if they come from a customer support background. Mm-hmm. But... I think that the stuff that we're doing as far as identifying risk is really not that difficult. It might be a new way of thinking. It might be a new way of understanding, okay, here's how I take technology and manipulate it. And what is the actual science to that? It's an art. It's something we can write a run book for. It's something that you can understand how all the pieces kind of fit together. And then once you understand how it fits together, you can see where they can kind of be nudged a little bit. You know, you can't find cross-site scripting without knowing a little bit of JavaScript and HTML, but you can learn JavaScript and HTML in about six hours, at least the bare minimums to oh, do that. Pieces of it. I mean, okay, <laughs> without like CSP bypasses or anything. Actually, a quick quick aside about this. So quite often, not so much these days, uh, I used to hire people for developer type jobs or whatever. And I'd, I'd ask them from one to 10 or from zero to 10 or whatever, how would you rate yourself on any given thing, right? And so they say on the resume that they did HTML and everyone says they do HTML. I'm like, great, okay. So where'd you rate yourself from a zero to a 10 on on that? Man, I remember the days where I thought that was getting up to eight, but now I feel like I'm back at four. (laughs) Um, It's definitely the conundrum of learning how much is really out there and kind of humbling yourself. Well, this is my point. So everyone says a 10. Everyone says a 10. They always say 10 or or nine. I'm like, okay, great. So before I go any further, uh, a 10 is the person who wrote HTML. You're the guy who wrote it. Nine is, uh, you know, you issued patches to make sure that it's done correctly. Uh, you know, eight is you wrote the book on HTML, et cetera. Right. And then going on down, like with that in context, and then I'll, I'll say, usually I don't have it in front of me, but I would slide across a piece of paper with some HTML on it. I'm like, just tell me what this says. If you're, if you're a 10, like you said, this should be very easy. You should be able to process this and tell me exactly what it says. I might take you a couple seconds to do it, but it's just a single line of text. Tell Mm -hmm. me what it says. And it's just very weirdly formatted in HTML and no one ever has been able to do this. No one. And it's a useful thing to do to them. Um, a lot of people say, you're kind of a jerk for doing that. I'm like, well, not really, because I'm not going to f- kick them out of the room when they realize that they're actually not a 10. What they usually say is, okay, I'm more like a five or whatever. I'm like, okay, great. Now it, now it says you have Python on there. And they're like, okay, I'm not going to do that same thing twice. <laughs> and now we're talking about what their real skill levels are on these various different things, which I find very useful. 
there's also a right and a wrong way to do that though. So like if you're doing that with the purpose of trying to understand where on the grand scheme of things their expertise lies, yes. because you know, for a one hour technical due diligence interview, it really is best effort and anyone can fake their way through that mm-hmm. uh, if they prepare enough. Right. Um, so I can th- certainly see situations where you could ask that sort of question in a sort of obnoxious and stump the chump kind of way, which mm-hmm. doesn't make the person interviewing feel great. And then they're not in their prime. Uh, of course. Um, I remember a situation once where we were interviewing someone and one of my colleagues decided he was going to get a little clever and said, how are you at burp? One out of 10 mm-hmm. Medusa, one out of 10 crunch, one out of 10 snort, one out of 10 barf, one out of 10. And the guy's like, I'm a three at barf. And I'm like, what is barf? And he made it up. You know, we have all these ridiculous acronyms uh, mm-hmm. for tools. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was a little bit of a, of a D bag kind of move, but that yeah. person also said they were three. So we know that they're lying about their capabilities. Right. I would assume he just meant to say beef, uh, when he said barf, but uh, it, it was something, <laughs> something that he looked up beforehand to uh-huh. understand, okay, this doesn't exist. And uh-huh. so I want to hear a zero on that one. Yeah, yeah. And you know, when you're throwing this word salad of like different tools with these, uh, yeah. So I don't do, names, I don't do that. That's the wrong way to do it. <laughs> I have a couple of other versions of this thing. Like I'll ask questions like, um, I mean, in his greatest technical capability that you have, tell me what happens between the time you type and listen carefully, www.google.com and you hit enter and the time in which it loads. And depending on who you ask, you get extraordinarily different answers. Yeah, you're going to get Windows system hook answers. Right. You're going to get well, no, no. key press event key, answers yeah, yeah, start or with DNS hardware. answers. Start with hardware. Like the hardware people talk about hardware, hardware interrupts, talk about keyboard commands, I.O., like how this, you know, the physical RAM and CPU are all processing. Then you have network, as you have operating system people who are talking about blitting and memory management, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Then you have networking people who talk about DNS. They'll talk about TCP IP or whatever. Then you have HTTP people or, you know, web people, whatever they'll talk about. Somebody in the middle might figure out, Hey, have you been there before? Oh, there's caching involved, you Mm -hmm. know, and then CSS is loading and, you know, HTTPS and HTTP and like, there's all these protocols, right? It's very, very complicated, very, very complicated. And occasionally people ask good follow-up questions like, what part of the world are you doing this in? Because you're hitting different routing, you know, depending on where you are. Like, yeah. you hit diff- it'll try to route you to a different domain. Like, this is actually a very useful question because I can quickly tell what kind of slot them in. Okay, you're really good at networking stuff. I can tell. But you know nothing about web, and that's okay. Now, I... I know where I need to focus to help you get to where you need to be. So I've heard that question a few times and I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's a GitHub repo called what happens when, mm-hmm. which lays out every single one of those steps. And mm-hmm. obviously when everyone's crowdsourcing it's, information it's, for it, it's, come, it's a study guide. It's, it's come from my interview question. It's <laughs> funny because much later, uh, about 10 years later, I was going in to do some consulting work and someone laid that question on me. And I'm like, okay, well that's my interview question. So I did the whole thing. Like no one's ever answered it like this. <laughs> it's so confusing. Like, you know more about this than we do. Uh, like <laughs> definitely a good like, way to pick up someone's domain expertise and what areas they've had a chance to explore in. Cause that's always going to vary. We, yeah. we might start learning the same stuff, but then whatever problems your business faces is going to take you in a completely different direction. Precisely. So that's kind of where I was going with the question. Like, how do you get someone from nothing? You're like, you don't even know what they don't know. I mean, they, they basically know nothing. I mean, they can turn on a computer, they can go yeah. to a website, maybe, they don't know the difference between HTTP and HTTPS. Like, how do you, how do you train? Is it just, you start from ground one, you know, yeah. you start from ground zero. Um, yeah, ground one. <laughs> uh, you, you, I think you have to understand what you're getting into if you're going to take on that sort of task. And it is a monumental task. It takes, I believe, 
in our best series between three to six months to have someone to where they're operational able to like do full pen test. Mm-hmm. I would say three months gives them the ability to look at most vulnerability classes and see a report and be able to recreate that and then accurately say, yes, that was vulnerable. No, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But as far as letting them go off on a full pen test saying, here's five websites and find what you find. That is a little bit more of a practice art, I would say. Not even a science, just an art. Um, a methodology of how do I actually go through this thing, discover all the content that is possible to be exploited, you know, determine the, the attack surface, the, the threat landscape, and then what do you prioritize? Because if it's an engagement where you only have 40 hours, is the site big? Is the site small? Are you going to do multiple passes on it? Or are you at best going to get one block of best, time best effort thing and then <laughs> you have 48 you have 40 hours of testing but you have to do it in 24 i've right. had that before <laughs> oh yeah yeah all of us have had that sunday call where it's like hey this thing is going live monday morning mm-hmm. and we need a pen test mm-hmm. all right all get right. the coffee going yeah, i'll do go. the best that i can and that's really what happens in the real world you do the best that you can mm-hmm. and then unfortunately what happens afterwards that gets the checkbox from infosec mm-hmm. it goes out to prod sometime later an exploit happens and they're going to say security assess that okay, hold on, we need to go back and really cover our tracks here to make sure that the ask was appropriately documented, <clears throat> that you know we made sure we set expectations along the way, and that can be a real pain point for security teams. Yeah, I, I'm wary of those types of things. I always, if I, I haven't done consulting in years, but every time I did, I would put these massive caveats, like here's what you told me, here's what you allowed me to do, here's the time frame you allowed me to do it, here's the sites you allowed me to try on, because obviously if I can go around the edges, I might find more things. Yeah. Because if I don't document that and someone comes back and says, how did you not find this thing on the test server? It's like, cause they didn't let me test the test server. That's why <laughs> it's yeah. not that I didn't see it was there. They wouldn't let me, or I didn't have enough time cause they, you know, they boxed me. Um, so I, I'm very, very, very careful with my caveats. I think it's just a matter of keeping your, I don't know, yourself intact. You know, it's, that is the reality of doing enterprise security at pretty much any major organization. You're going to have a time boxed assessment and then the actual attackers out there who are hammering it down, they're going low and slow. They're spending months doing it. Maybe they're funded. If they're nation state uh, resources behind them, you know, they're just going to keep going until they find something. Mm-hmm. And then as someone who's doing security assessments and trying to perform security validation for an enterprise, you need to really do the best that you can with limited time to make sure that you're covering as much as possible. And the bad side to that is that no one can really call your bluff if you're not doing that appropriately. And I think we see this a lot with people passing off vulnerability scans as pen tests. Anyone can point a scanner at a particular website or a server, click scan, here's the Nessus results, and they pass off the printout results to whoever the team may be. And we've all seen it. Yes, and it's all garbage. Usually. Sometimes there's nuggets in there. and occasionally. Occasionally there's a lot of low to medium things in there that can be strung together to make something really cool happen. Like for instance, uh, I saw this once where there was an application with directory indexing enabled and a .git folder there. Well, that means that you can just recursively download it all, have git status on it, git logs locally, check out everything from that git repo, and now the black box assessment is turned into a white box one. Yeah. But the automated scanner would just say there's directory indexing and maybe a PRL, a predictable resource location for .git. Right. And unless you have someone, a human looking at that to string those together or realize that and then write a rule for it for further future automations, mm-hmm. it's going to get missed. And that is critical. That is source code leakage. Right. Yeah. I found Nessus in particular is kind of a weird uh, tool because a lot of things that are low should be high and a lot of things that are high should be low. Uh, so it really does require an expert to look at it and actually analyze what's going on. 
uh, some things that were informational only turns out to be remote, exploitable buffer overflow. You could easily break in. It's just that no one had ever p- bothered to put that all together. And once you're looking at it, you're like, oh, well, that's easy enough, you know. <laughs> and it's really not useless. It's a great Swiss army knife if you need to get started somewhere and you don't know where to start. Sure, do it. The, the value is probably not going to be useless. And it's relatively cheap as far as assessments go. But it does not replace a human looking at it. It doesn't replace a human that is putting together the context of those reports and what matters to the business and where that business's application intersects with their customers. So where do you feel that tools are useful? Where, where do you feel like you have to use them? Well, if you're going to go wide, you need automation. There's no way around it. And I say that as someone who, you know, I can code today. I've got 10 years to practice and get a little bit better at that craft. <laughs> it's not my favorite part of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realize it's necessary to be a stronger security engineer. So when you have to go wide, you need automation for that. When you want to go deep, automation is usually going to fail. And if you're good at your process, you can take the lessons learned from that deep thing and try to apply it to the wide stuff, but you're going to have edge cases all over the place. So you're in this infinite loop of development, and now you're a developer building security tools. And I know that if I'm in that particular spot personally, that's not my day job. Mm -hmm. That's not what I want to do. That's not what I wake up getting excited about. I like finding all the vulnerabilities that other automated scanners miss. And so naturally, I'm more excited about that. Mm -hmm. And I think this makes makes an interesting problem in InfoSec where we realize that we need a lot of builders building the tools and not a lot of those builders are hackers. There are some really just golden rock stars out there who can do both, but I feel like it's, it's very rare and they know they're worth too. Not everyone can be Google and hire them all. Mm -hmm. And so what do the small medium businesses do the best they can? And then they roll with the punches. They get hacked is what happens. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You either have been or you don't know that you've been. And that's probably the only two realities. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I always find it hilarious when people say that they've, you know, like someone surprised that someone got hacked. I'm like, just go down to their IT team, <laughs> walk around and look at all the stacks and stacks and stacks of laptops. They're all compromised. Every one of them have are running slow or have pop-ups or whatever. They're all compromised. Yeah, and there's some BYOD device somewhere that has full egress out to the internet that yeah. is still on the internal network, and there's your pivot point. Yeah, there's a... There's a bunch of software that people download to like make their lives easier and make connectivity easier. But it also makes it easier for the bad guy to connect back into you. It's basically a bunch of reverse shells <laughs> in your browser. Yeah, man, it's yeah, a, it's all a personal team dealer licenses yeah. that people throw in. Yeah, it's a, it's a hot mess. And it's very permeable. I mean, I've, I've hacked into some of the largest uh, enterprises on earth just to get my job done, just to do the minimum things that they asked me to do. Not even because I was malicious, just like trying to accomplish some minor technical thing I was trying to do. I remember having to, um, I had a, I was a certain company I was working for and we had an external machine and an internal machine and the internal machine was entirely locked down, but we used the internal machine to do assessments on internal things. Well, I needed to get security tooling on that internal machine, which is basically, basically violates all the malware controls, all of the security controls for other employees. But I'm like, Hey, I'm on the security team. I need this to do my job. They're like, it looks like malware. You're like, it is malware. I am the malware. Like, allow it. Um, <laughs> it literally is malware. Right. And so I remember taking like, um, I think it was like the old SSL tester.exe and like chunking that up into 20 different bits and sending it bit by bit via email to myself to open it on that particular target machine, just recombine those 20 parts and have my executable, mm-hmm. which is the exact same thing as data exfiltration. Yeah. I just did it in the other direction. Yeah. Just put it in and says, Pulling out. Yeah. And then, then I wrote down data exfiltration as a finding just the other way. Yeah. <laughs> Infiltration. Yeah. And I used it to put my tool in, which is the same for uh, ransomware. Yeah. Exact same use case. Yeah, exactly. So 
with all of this knowledge, you are thinking about starting a new thing on your own. Yep. Um, so how did you come to that realization that you want to do that? Yeah. And how um, do I talk you out of it? <laughs> honestly, this is, okay. So I have recently, I guess I've been in enterprise security for about 12 years now. Um, a couple of different companies, a couple of different times, which is a lifetime. It yeah. definitely feels like it. Um, and I think the gray streaks in the beard are entirely from FinTech. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. You, you made a stopover in FinTech. It wasn't, <laughs> yeah, and wasn't the, straight from hacker armies to your own thing. There was a, there was a horrible middle section there. <laughs> funnily enough, this was the first interview or public event really that I've done since joining FinTech companies in 2016. Yeah, I remember we tried to get this done last year and there was no way it was going to happen. It was just a not, it wasn't even worth putting in the effort in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I really enjoy getting back out because I love talking about this stuff and sharing my experiences with other people. But about 12 years in enterprise security and as the career escalated, you know, it becomes more about diplomacy and politics and having the right conversation at the right time, understanding when momentum is in your court for when you can ask for budget, understanding when not to ask for it because you will not get it next time if you don't uh, cement yourself as a domain expert in that particular area. I kind of just got tired of the politics, to be honest. I've always tried to bring the day job back to hacking because one, I love it. I feel like I'm good at it and I'm happy when I do it. So I've made the decision to leave enterprise security and start my own consultancy. And we're just going to see where it goes. This is really more of a labor of love than anything else. If I could choose what my day job is, it's going to be building this thing out. And I have a lot of thoughts on, for instance, um, when you did the bit discovery bit, Mm. um, I really wanted to do something like that as well. But I was always really worried about, if I built it out, the company that I worked for would own the IP for it. Yeah, that's a very common problem. And so I have, I've got some cool ideas and I'm watching other people build it out and I'm just like, oh man, that is, that is awesome. I would love to do that. I would love to scan the internet and then identify points of interest and then like run nuclei scripts against all of them. Nuclei allowed, or nuclei, nuclei? Yeah, I'm not nuclei. sure how people say it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things that you, only, you read a lot and then you don't hear someone say it. So yeah. you're not sure if you say it the wrong way. <laughs> um, like GIF? Just get, yeah, it's like figure out if you're if you're heading out the door right now. Or not. Um, get out of here! Right, right. That one is explicitly wrong. Well, I've got a lot of thoughts like that that I really want to build out, and I think I have some pretty cool ideas for where we can take DAST scanning towards, which is really in the dumps right now. Mm-hmm. Um, DAST really hasn't evolved in the last decade, and I've got some nuggets in mind about where we can identify spots where human interaction really could take over. It's sort of like a hybrid approach and then use those human areas of interest along with the current like large language model push with chat GPT and LLMs becoming a little bit more accessible to folks. Just, you got to watch out for prompt injection, man. Woof. <laughs> oh, Absolutely. Man, and, it is gnarly. And there's a couple players in the space already. So uh, the horizon three AI is one of them. And Pantera, which I love the name of, you know, as, yeah. as, a, as a Pantera metal junkie, yes, yeah. like, they nailed it on that one. <laughs> I agree. Um, they're doing some cool stuff in the space there. So I'm really excited to watch where they go. I've also got my own thoughts on it. So all of this thoughts towards building my company and my firm is really going to have that North star that I talked about earlier as top of mind, focusing on people. Um, not taking on investors, no outsider funding, which means no compromising of my values. Mm-hmm. If we grow, it'll be at a slow organic rate, which is fine because I want to make sure that what we're doing is focusing on the areas that I think other people miss. And what I think other people are often doing is passing off vulnerability scans as penetration tests. I don't think they're considering the context of their customers and where that business intersects with technology, which is something that I want to do. And I think that I have a pretty good track record of identifying those risk areas and presenting it to a company. But then on the other side of it, if the company decides they don't want to fix it, 
that's just not my problem. And as much as it pains me to say that, you know, I mentioned the 15 minute rule earlier when you're working on an asset and you think you have something that's vuln, but you can't spend your entire time on it at, after a certain amount of point of time, you have to move on. And I think I've kind of hit that point with enterprise security team building and politics with other teams. And, and it's unfortunate. I, I really hate to swallow that stone, but that's kind of been my experience and the lens that I've looked at it through. Mm-hmm. I'd like to get back in that game at some point in the future, but I think I'm at a spot now where I kind of just want to move on and focus back on what I thought that I was the best at, which was finding really cool vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And if I can take that in a positive way, give back to the community and kind of teach what I find along the way, I think that I'll be doing a net value add. So does that mean you're getting on the road show? I mean, obviously you're on the road right now, Yeah, you uh, gotta do, but are you going to, are you going to start doing speeches and the whole thing? Oh, absolutely. I miss, I miss public speaking a lot. Um, I was very humbled to be able to do the top 10 web hacks when Jeremiah passed it on down. Yeah. You can and, still do it. <laughs> well, so funnily enough, um, that was missed after yeah. I guess my co-presenter for that was Matt J and him and I both went into FinTech. Well, the talks kind of stopped then because you can't really get no, past the FinTech lawyers. Yeah, they right. say no. And <laughs> that red tape is there. Um, Gareth Matt, Hayes from Portswigger. And, and Matt is, Matt is back. Uh, he's at Reddit now, but I think he can talk about anything now. So go yeah. for it. Him and I have had a great, uh, like rekindling, I guess, since, yeah. uh, you know, he's been here in Austin. I just moved back. Mm-hmm. And anyways, uh, the top 10 webpacks thing kind of died for a little bit. And Gareth Hayes, who runs Portswigger, uh, the company that puts out burp just noticed that the gap was there. Wait, Gareth Hayes runs Portswigger now? Or I don't know if he runs it, but you know, Duff had stuttered. I think it runs it. Sorry. Yeah. I think I had to have that backwards, but, Gareth Hayes picked up the top 10 web hacks just because the vacuum was there. And he's like, this was a great ad for the community. We really miss it. And so now he's running it. Mm. No real interest to take that away from him. I wouldn't mind pinging him and saying, Hey, uh, things are going great. If you want someone to help carry the load, I'm happy to do that because it was a great value add for the community and nothing sounds better than someone else saying, Hey, this was missed. It needs to come back. You know, one of the things I liked about it was for as, uh, as much as, as an expert as I wanted to be this whole time, I didn't have time to research other people's vulnerabilities and so it was a kind of a nice once a year sit down and just just yeah. spend the time to analyze each one of those top 10. And like you know, even I was usually in the top 10, so I could ignore mine. And so it was like whatever, six or seven or eight left, yeah, right? We didn't let you vote on yours. I remember <laughs> that. <laughs> but, but that's nice though, because there were six or seven or eight or whatever the number was that I had no idea about. So I or had very little information comparatively. So it was a good time of year even for me to get uh, much more familiarized. But now... I'm not in that game at all. So it'd be really interesting to see it. Well, I could still see you being as uh, an advisor or a judge or something like that, because occasionally you have to call BS on what a finding is and Mm -hmm. assess the real validity of it. And sometimes that's a toss up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a point I wanted to go with and now it evaded me. Well, um, so let me talk you out of it. (laughs) Sure. So, so before you do that, let me just say that I have never woken up happier um, I'm working on the areas that just really bring me joy. So good luck, uh, but take well, your best stab. Well, you know, I'm not saying I'm going to talk you out of it, but let me try to talk you out of it. So first of all, um, do you have a pretty good line of customers that you're interested in bringing in or already talking to you? It's like, what's your pipeline look like is I guess my question. So right now I'm kind of in like a soft launch sort of phase. Um, I've reached out to, or I've advertised to friends and family that I know people who have worked with in the industry for the better part of the last decade. And I have more people talking to me that I know what to do with, which is a great sign. I'm glad I did this with, now with, with money or like they're actually want to buy something with people who are will they know the kind of values that I uphold and the type of work that I do. Mm-hmm. And they know what I would build with that in mind. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of more in the space of like, you know, you're paying X amount for the tenables, the qualuses, the rapid sevens. Cusco's is doing his own thing and 
it's going to be a little bit more down to earth, a little bit more real to the source, I guess. And that's kind of the value that I'm pushing. Mm -hmm. So I do have a pipeline of things starting up, but we're in a spot now with like, you know, DEF CON's right around the corner. I'm looking to really enjoy and get back in my roots with people, have talks like this and not be compromised. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in a good spot where I can say, hey, maybe like Q4 of this year, we'll start talking about things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But it looks great so far. And I'm I'm really excited about it. Well, that's good. A lot of people miss that first step. They don't have a pipeline. Because one of two things is happening. You're either building a pipeline and getting those sales done or you're doing the work. And because you're Cusco's, they're going to want to give it to you specifically. And so you're going to be busy doing the work. But that's what I'm wanting to I know, do. I know, I know, so, I know. So it's great. Now, no, but you have to do both. You can't do one. You have to do both. That's the big trick. And, and I'm learning how to balance that right now. A lot of this is doing something new, uncomfortable, getting in a new space, kind of seeing how the reality hits the road behind the scenes. I've always done this from the past of working for another computer another company and then doing their pen test. Mm-hmm. I've kind of seen how the full loop happens. I haven't done it myself, but that's what we're doing right now. But what's great about this is that I've prepared for this moment. Um, I've been thinking about this for quite some time. If I would have done this seven or eight years ago, I wouldn't have had the network to let it support itself organically. Mm-hmm. I'm not really having to sell too terribly much because people understand the work that I do and I've built a good reputation and now it's put your money where your mouth is and deliver on it, mm-hmm. which I don't have any real qualms about. I'm pretty excited about it to be okay. honest. That's good. And okay, the other problem that we ran into was we thought six months of cash was plenty. It is not. Uh, it turns out you probably need somewhere between 12 and 18 months of cash for a company like that. Yep. Uh, and I've got plenty, about plenty two of, or three years of runway. Plenty of runway. I don't need okay. to take on outside investors. And a lot of that is from really planning this out for quite some time. Okay. Um, I've run the numbers, I've understood what I believe my spend will be. And we're in an interesting spot right now. Speaking of bug bounties or responsible disclosure, mm-hmm. I don't care if I don't have a client or if there's a particular client coming in who's going to be like a real pain in the rear to take on. I just double the, your your uh, your fees. Well, it's the asshole tax. You know, just add it. I, I, had, <laughs> I, I had one prospective one come my way that I was pretty excited about, but they wanted to own the IP of anything that I create as I'm pen testing. No, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so the red lining goes both ways. But at the same time, and I want to really want to go back to like bug bounties and responsible disclosure. There are n- no less than maybe 10,000 applications out there that are viable bug bounty targets. And so anyone like I'm not, I'm nothing special. If anyone wants to get into hacking and do this, there are literally 10,000 things out there with a um, safe Harbor clause saying, Hey, you can freely assess us. Mm-hmm. There are some rules to abide by. There are some things that are out of scope, but the playground has never been bigger and there's real monetary value for doing it. So you have two options. You're either going to go deep on one target and you can really do a lot by just reading bug fixes and blogs about new releases for a particular product. Facebook does what two code pushes a day and it's millions and millions of lines each tens of millions, maybe mm-hmm. that's a lot of stuff changing. Yeah. Now they're a very immature company. There are others that are a little bit more um, accessible, you could say, mm-hmm. but you can either go deep on one or wide on a whole bunch. And when you look at stuff like, Shodan, who just scans the internet looking for things that are open. Well, why can't Joe, like uh, John Smith or Jane Doe do the same thing themselves mm-hmm. and then start looking at patterns of things that they know that they are good at. Go deep on your expertise or the thing that you're learning on. Build a personal asset inventory. Kind of what bit discovery was, mm-hmm. but there's no reason that like you don't need massive troves of data processing for that. You need a Best Buy laptop mm-hmm. and somewhere to store the data. You can really do a lot with about $300 of equipment. And it's scary how much that you can do as far as Bit, web applications. Bit Discovery had some special sauce. Oh, I'm, and I'm sure a it did. Bit, a little bit better than the laptop that you'd be able to do in your house. <laughs> but 
Um, but that is how it started, right? It started on single, very beefy machines, not not a Best Buy laptop. But yeah, mine may be on my gaming rig at the moment. It's pretty dual purpose. <laughs> so the only other thing I would say, and if this doesn't dissuade you, then nothing will. Um, was what we ran into is uh, we kind of split our our group in half. Half was doing product development. The other half was doing pen testing. And occasionally some people would cross over. But as you said, hackers are not really particularly great developers and vice versa. And so it wasn't a good mix of people to do that. Um, and so it ended up being, I would say, mostly a massive drain on the resources of the company as opposed to a, a net value add and ultimately something we could sell. Mm-hmm. We came up with an, an insanely awesome product. It was called Falling Rock Networks, totally unhackable. We couldn't find anyone who could hack it. We tried, like, gave it to everybody we could think of. Um, you gave this to me yeah. at some point. So now that keeps me up at night <laughs> because when you gave it to me, I was in that hungry for being the best web app expert possible. And I was very much in that zone of like, all right, I can find the RCEs. I can find the SQL injections. I had no idea how to privesque or pivot yet. Mm-hmm. That's just too early in my career. And I occasionally think about that time where you just put that shell in front of me. And now I'm just like, was that a jail? Did I just need to break out of that? <laughs> like I just didn't understand Privesk as a concept then. I know it now. I'd right. love to see it now. Yeah. I'm well, years too late, unfortunately. Yeah, many years too late, unfortunately. That, that keeps well, me up to this day. All those technologies. Like, well, but, it? but it, literally everyone had the same problem. They were either really good at privilege escalation, but had no idea what to do with shells. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't know how to what to do with the command. Like usually people, hackers in general, specialize at one of two things. Either getting in or once you're already in doing something, mm-hmm. but so I gave them the way in, like, here's the exploit. Just go ahead. Like, forget that part. Just, just assume it's vulnerable. Yeah. Here's now, your assumed compromise yeah, assessment just, I, and no one's done that just, yet. You can do whatever you want. Like I had, I gave them SQL injection, command injection, and the full URL username and password to the admin console, like everything you'd ever want. Right. And, and every one of those in an unprivileged uh, situation could do nothing, but in a privileged could do everything. So it's basically like, do the bad thing. Go ahead. Do whatever you're going to do that was going to be bad. Get the credit card uh, numbers out of the database or shut the machine down or overwrite the code to do something bad or whatever you can do. Mm-hmm. Whatever you can think of to do, do something bad. I probably gave it to over 100 hackers of uh, like of all, what disciplines? all over the place. Really? Some of the Metasploit guys, a lot of OWASP types. No, that surprises me if any of the Metasploit guys couldn't get get somewhere on there. No. Um, I mean, they thought they could, and then they got on the box and they're like, Whoa, everything's kind of weird. And mm. things that they thought would work just didn't. Cause there was a bunch of, there's layers as everything. It was like an onion. It was a beautiful onion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not everybody like For onion. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's one thing I would love to go back and try again. Yeah. Uh, just in, see if future me can kind of do what past me couldn't. Yeah. But so my, my point yeah. in all of that was, uh, we built something amazing, like really, really amazing. And we needed it for us. Uh, so it wasn't like a complete waste of time. But the productization of it was a complete waste of time. We were never able to make any serious money on it. And it really split our resources and I think ultimately uh, burned through a probably a year or more's worth of cash. Uh, gotcha. We didn't need to. So when you were talking about uh, like automating whatever, Arachne or whatever, um, if you spend too much time on that, you might actually be uh, taking away from your actual bread and butter of, uh, of consulting. Absolutely. And, that, and that's possible. My goal here is ultimately professional services. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's because this is what I think the fun part of the job is. And I'm just looking to get back to some of that playing. Some mm-hmm. of that stuff that you're like, 
authentically passionate about. And I think that that is infectious in just the best of possible ways. And I know that there's many multiple others of people out there mm-hmm. who kind of think the same way. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the market is a little chaotic right now. And for the first time ever, we're seeing cybersecurity people get laid off. That yeah. has never happened. Yeah. I'm seeing which, some insanely awesome people not able to get jobs, which is bizarre. So if you're yeah. looking to hire some insanely awesome people, <laughs> uh, I, I, I know it's there. Um, what's going to be most important to me is obviously like organic growth mm-hmm. and making sure that the values are aligned. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no shortage of people who want to be in this industry just for the paycheck. And I'm not saying that's bad, but I want to make sure that people, if I have the opportunity to choose who's coming in, I want that North star value of why what we're doing matters really being close to heart. Cause I think that that's where you build like a great culture. You build people who really vibe with the same mission and then you get to have fun at the same time. What about like a virtual CISO type stuff? Have you thought about um, doing more on the the business side of security as opposed to the technical side? I'd be open to it. Um, I've done some work in the past that's more along the BISO sort of work. And it really is that. You have a technical background. You understand intimately how the hacking process works if you're going to be in the security side of things. And then you need to understand, okay, well, what does the what is the business's goal? And if you have an engineering team who's building some solution that progresses what the business mission is understanding where that intersection with security is, is pretty paramount to getting real traction. Mm -hmm. I don't think, well, how do I put this? I've seen people in that space who are really faking and making it in bad ways. They are not good security assessors and they can really stump the chump with with their uh, CXO peers. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of room for improvement there. I think I could do that, but again, it's not what I wake up to do. And this mission is really more about waking up and being happy with the job that's in front of me for the rest of the day. Right. I've, I've, you know, security is a job at some point too. And some bits of it are just work. I got to a point where 99% of it was work and I wasn't thrilled about it anymore. It wasn't a good feeling. Well, you don't have to be here. You can do what you want to do. And so, some bit of me doing this own venture is right place, right time, having the right wisdom for it, having the right ability to fund it. Um, I could take outsider, outside investors. I don't want to, cause I don't want to compromise my values. And I've planned for that outcome. Now we're going to see where it goes. We're mm-hmm. going to see if, if anything happens. But at the same time... It doesn't sound like I'm talking out of this at all. No, no. <laughs> if, if anything, I, I just get more excited talking about it. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's very... I didn't think I was going to get it. It's definitely that. nice that I'm quit. doing this 12 years into my career instead of three years because over the last 12 years, I've made a lot of contacts. I've worked on a lot of teams. I've had an opportunity to influence people in positive ways, I think. And they are reaching out to me saying, hey, when are you available? Which is telling me, all right, I got to find some other me's who share the same vision and we're going to choose that process pretty carefully. Um, so what makes a good hacker then? I mean, so you said, yeah. you said that at one point it's really about the amount of hours you put in. It was the fact that you stayed up in the middle of the night. Uh, it's the work ethic you put into it. It was the interest you had in it. I but th- if you were to, if you were to like point at somebody and say, they're going to end up being a good hacker if they just decide to do it or whatever. Um, how, can you visualize them? Can you, can you, can you tell me which ones are going to be which? Yeah. I think it's the people who find something interesting and then they just get excited about it. Um, there's nothing more aggravating than like testing parameter after parameter for XSS. That's kind of boring. It's kind of sloppy, but let's say that you are instead enumerating which possible values each parameters response will give you. So you now have a character set of things that can happen and you know, okay, that's how the character set of this application works. Now you find another spot that doesn't sanitize that input. Well, now you know, based on those limitations, the characters that are allowed, how you can generate the payload. And when I see that, I get excited. Mm. It's not that I'm happy about finding cross-site scripting. That's quite boring. But I think that you can look at things in 
ways that really jive with your personal experience and how you learned how things come together. And if that excites you, that's the thing that you should chase. Mm -hmm. Now, sure, your eyes might glaze over as you're going through that process. I put in a lot of hours early in my career. That was to gain the technical skill set. You got to learn. It's not going to just happen. You're not going to get force fed it. That being said, there has never been more material to just learn this. Like, I can't imagine you went to hacktheBox.eu and learned how to do boot to root exercises. There wasn't even a .eu back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and in fact, like .co.uk probably had its own yeah. issues with TLDs. Oh, it sure right? did with cookies. Yep. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that was a brand new issue. But, but now, you know, there, there's that. There's try hack me. Offensive security has their whole uh, playground mm-hmm. that you can be in. And the barrier has never been more accessible to just find servers out there that are meant to be compromised. And not only that, there are guides, there are walkthroughs. There's one particular YouTuber uh, with the handle Ipsec, which is absolutely fantastic. Multiple times a week, this guy puts out two to three hour videos of how he boot to rooted an exercise. Mm -hmm. And what's great about watching this person do it is that they're very down to earth, they're very humble in how they speak. The guy fat fingers commands all the time and then it doesn't work and you're like, well, how did that happen? Oh, I messed this thing up and he goes back and backspaces and fixes the thing. And so it's like, edit it out. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's he nothing's could. edited out yeah. and it, I think it kind of humanizes what hacking really is like. It's a little bit of trial and error. It's a little bit of mm-hmm. how, how do I gain understanding of the thing that I'm looking at when I've never seen this before? If you've never tried to like abuse an FTP service, you got to start somewhere. And uh, this, the reason I bring this guy up is that uh, he has a website called ipsec.rocks. And, and again, I don't know the guy, the guy doesn't know me, but you can go there and literally type in responder and it links to 20 so videos where he has done responder to intercept connections on an internal network, all timestamped. That is an amazing learning resource for someone who might just need to know, okay, you know, I forgot SQL injection payloads. I, I forgot the syntax for something. You can go there and now all the materials on YouTube. And that's just one person. There's several content creators out there. There's several vulnerable places. There's a securitytube.net, I think, yeah. where there's just tons of security videos just at hundreds. Just right there. And so the video maybe more, maybe thousands. There's a lot. Not only is the information accessible, there's a market of people competing to be more understandable than the last person. Mm-hmm. So I always think about that when someone is saying, Well, how do I get into hacking? And I'm like, Well, what excites you? Where do you want to start? The content is all there. They just don't understand how accessible it really is. And so going back to how do you take someone who's not technical and teach them how to be a hacker? I start by having the conversation with them and be like, okay, well, what kind of excites you? Do you like, are you interested in seeing how websites can misbehave? Are you interested in seeing how someone can connect to an internal network and siphon data out? Does ransomware sound exciting? Not like extortion is anything new. That's a thousands and thousands of year old concept. Yes. I like extorting people. Yeah. yeah. Like, like fix the ransomware. And I'm like, you mean command injection you, as a concept? What do, you, what do you mean? Fix it. You mean install it better? <laughs> people are downloading to <laughs> Um Yeah. And so I think it's really about trying to understand where they've intersected with technology in the past. And what about that makes them excited? Maybe it's pay phones, depending on how old they are. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's cell phones. And it's like, okay, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do with like, 4G and 5G networks. You need to start learning how that works. And from there, you can start kind of noodling the areas that overlaps with what the business needs, with what their skill sets are, and find an intersection. And in that spot, I think, is an opportunity to really be a good leader. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if you were to say what the credentials of a hacker are, do you think you know they need to have a four-year degree? Do they need to Not at all. have some sort of credentials in some other way, some certificates? Like I think that... There are some certificates that are worth it. 
Um, and if the person has done nothing else but gone and get certificates, I don't think that that necessarily downplays them at all. That shows that they're trying to figure out where to start. Not everyone has a good mentor. Mm -hmm. And some of us have several good mentors and we're really lucky to call ourselves uh, or to be, to be a part of that community. Other people are trying to get in and they don't know anyone in already. And so I think that when you see someone who has like the degree mill of certs, it might raise a question in the interview. So why have you chased these certificates? What about them do you really like? Has that taught you anything new? Or is it the kind of person who has a bunch of certs and can't tell you the difference between HTTP and HTTPS? And is that just because they haven't focused on websites? That can mm -hmm. really be an issue too. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I, don't, I don't think it dissuades you if you don't have a four-year degree. I think that what you really want to suss out from someone is are they excited about going down this path? And that is really discipline agnostic. If they're excited about it, they can learn. And there's going to be a lot of like hands-on learning that's necessary to develop the skill sets. But once it starts, if you can show someone how excited you are in it and you really are truly excited about it, I think it's, I really think it's infectious. Mm -hmm. And I think that that person really vibes off of that sort of paired commitment to what you're trying to get across. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, I am one of the very few people that I know who uh, definitely did not end up with a degree and, you know, has managed to get where I'm at. And Jeremiah Grossman, similarly, didn't get a degree. And a lot of people, in fact, the, the guy who got me into security to the level I am now, um, Bronk Buster, all those years ago, uh, he, uh, he had an art history major or degree or something. I don't know, like <laughs> completely <laughs> antithetical to anything computer related at all. And it just didn't matter. You know, we were just all interested in it. That's what got us started. When I was leading a team that's main purpose was to run bake-offs against other uh, competitors, one of the most interesting persons on my team who consistently found more vulnerabilities than other people had a doctorate in philosophy. Yeah. Didn't know how to code. I mean, you pick up how to code along the way, but wasn't a career software developer, I could say. Mm -hmm. And just being able to think about how someone else might build something gave that person a lot of valuable insights that just weren't coming to the rest of us. Yeah. And so it made paired assessments really interesting. It's like, why did you think, why did you go there first? What made that a thought? And you know, he would come up with some off the road reason of why, Oh, I think a developer would be thinking about this as they're building that out. And Oh, you found SQL injection there. What, who would do that? Um, I think that you can have multiple different backgrounds and that lens is going to shape how you view something. And so if you take two people and put them on the same assessment, you're going to miss some things naturally and that's fine. But I think the overlap is less significant than people might believe. Okay. Uh, this is a really interesting topic to me. <clears throat> so once upon a time we were playing with the idea of what I call magic assessments where I could just divine by looking at an application just by looking at it. No, not even clicking around, just, just uh, the homepage and you know, URL parameter. If there is any, you know, just the HTML, just looking at how things are laid out, CSS, et cetera approximately how many vulnerabilities there'd be at a minimum just by looking at it. And so just an example, if there's a, something that says login, well, I know there's a login page. I haven't clicked on it yet, but I know there's a login page, which means they probably have vertical, horizontal brute force attacks. Um, there's also a diagonal. There's also a credential stuffing version of it. So they probably have four or five vulnerabilities there. Uh, I see registration page. There's usually like at least two vulnerabilities in registration, almost always. There's a search function. There's almost always cross-site scripting on search functions back then anyway, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, right? So you could just kind of look at this thing and go like, okay, you probably have about 15 vulnerabilities and it would probably take me about this long to, to actually suss them all out and get the actual payloads out. And it, 
there's not a whole lot of value in knowing that except for the weird part is when I started, I had this weird sense that everything was secure, that I was just imagining that everything was vulnerable. There was just, it's just not true. Like, and when I get in there and I actually play with it, I'm going to find out this thing is totally secure. But then I see one spelling mistake. I see <laughs> one copyright out of date or something. And I'm like, oh, I know I'm going to get in. <laughs> like, I just know it. This No one pays attention to this site anymore. I know this is WordPress. I know it's got three or four, like, very serious vulnerabilities in it based on the fact I can tell that that thing is installed. I'm, I'm in 100%. You know, I have the same thoughts when I just see .edu <laughs> in the domain because they're often written by computer science students. Yeah. And it's just like, all right. You know, the first thing they learned about SQL statements is an injectable version or an uh-huh. injectable statement written on the whiteboard by the professor. If professors even write on whiteboards today. Yeah. Um, yeah. The same kind of spidey sense. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that mostly get, I, I feel like that's gone away a little bit in the last couple yeah, of years, but it, not it a sure, lot because, sure because most things that have gone to prod now, not all of them, but most things I think that have gone to prod today has, a, have at least had some sort of due diligence done on it. If they don't have a security team internally, the development team might be using like sneak or something or sonar cube. It's still a development CICD tool, but it has some security help in it mm-hmm. or, or their frameworks have some security stuff. Right. Into and so it. that provides some mm-hmm. minimum level of absolutely of a thing. Um, there, there, it, and that doesn't mean that it's fully secure either. That no. doesn't replace a security assessment or security due diligence. No. And there's a lot of lo- logic flaws. That's actually where I think uh, dynamic scanning in general is a bit of a dying thing because yep. You're just not able to find the things that it's going to be vulnerable to anymore. It, those things are relegated to where humans live now. So there's another thing there that I think is... Logic flaws is what I meant by it's, that. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, how many companies do you know of that do just DAST today? I can't uh, think of any. Uh, oof, just, just DAST? Yes. Mm. Pretty much everyone that I'm aware of... They're going to be a very small company. ...has done something else, and then they've tacked on DAST as a byproduct so that the sales team can say, we sell the whole package. And maybe they do, but I don't think even even trying to innovate in that space anymore. The web has changed so much and it's hard to assess. Sure. I think that there's a lot other like low hanging fruit out there. Um, endpoint detection probably being the latest thing. And now AI generated code is going to be the next one in front of us if we're not paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of see that being equivalent to anyone that slept on cloud it's, security it's already, eight years ago. It's already happening, my friend. Totally. Yeah. And I, and, I, and <clears throat> like chat GPT is great for paired programming. If you want to ask a dumb question and not let your friends know that you had to ask a dumb question, take that response with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. rubber duck debug it, make sure you understand every line because it will give you bad answers. But as far as like debugging statements and if you're okay with it, getting your code, that is a completely separate problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, it'll point you in a direction or, pretty or, quickly. Or, or giving you code that's GPL'd. True. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and how do you know? How would you know? Right. And so it's kind of like, it reminds me of the art of, you know, there's people who can ask good Google questions and people who can't. And so they never get the result that they needed. Mm-hmm. And I think that asking large language models, the same sort of thing is going to be like the next skill set for us. But again, when it yeah. comes to AI generated code, which is absolutely going to be shipped to production, that is likely going to come with a lot of templated vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. So imagine all the Vuln stack overflow things, the or one equals ones just put right on in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely happening. Uh, I asked ChatGPT to produce a registration Lambda function the other day, just out of curiosity to see what had happened. And it was very clean code. I was like, wow, this is pretty good. So then I started auditing it, you know, mm-hmm. as one will do. And I realized it didn't lowercase the email addresses. Hmm. 
<laughs> and it was using email addresses of primary keys. So if you have two people registered with just like uppercase or lowercase, and there was no like sending an email to verification, all that stuff was gone. Right. Uh, right. Like all that stuff's broken. But uh, it just, it would work. And so now you'd have two people with the same email address at, with... I can get in with my email address and then if it lowercases it later at some other function to normalize it or whatever, now I'm looking at somebody else's data, like, like, wow, that would be, that's very hard to understand that that's a problem. And then even harder to explain why it matters to the average developer. Like why, why does it matter? Lowercase, yeah. uppercase, like they're different users. Like, yeah, but they aren't really. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's going to, there are definitely areas where it can be a huge value add. For instance, I have someone who's learning Python mm -hmm. and they are using ChatGPT to help them learn Python. Well, pretty quickly, they've gone from having like a hello world application that is multi-threaded with thread locks. And who does that? But they're understanding those concepts a little bit ahead of their time and understanding, okay, here's how parallel processing works. I could not do that until I hit enterprise because I was a bad computer science student, but there's some boundaries that that is really going to reduce for people who, who might want to get a technical career or a coding career or a security career. They can learn the basics in a way that I think removes a lot of boundaries. When you think about how hard it is to get good information, especially we're looking at like the cost of academia in the States. Mm -hmm. And most of us are learning from YouTube university anyways, when the professors are teaching bad examples or not being available. Mm -hmm. Um, there's two things that are going to happen. One, folks are going to be using that as an easier access to information. And two, they're probably going to be learning injectable examples or bad examples. And that's going to hit prod. Yep. And even if you have the most secure product in the world, interns join those companies and they push stuff to prod. And so you're stuck with what their knowledge is. And if there's a security control mechanism in place of that going out, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if it's Friday afternoon and the thing has to hit prod by 5 PM Friday, it goes out mm -hmm. and then it doesn't get looked at until Monday. And so if you can find an error in that, it's it's just the new yeah, um, so select so star so from something written on a on a whiteboard where a professor is teaching someone how to write SQL statements. You this, learn an injectable example. This is a very 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 bad trend. Uh, like I, I've asked it some basic math questions. I mean, very basic. But I put it in context of Python, so it should be able to understand what I'm talking about. Not it wasn't just a pure math function. It was like, what is this large exponential thing? plus a large exponential thing equal. What does it equal? And it'll say it equals this number. I'm like, but it doesn't. On any 32-bit machine, it's infinity. It's not that number. It's not some very large number. It's infinity. It's like, oh, yes, you're right. It's like, well, okay, well, here's another example. Can, can you do this one right? It's like, nope, I can't do that one right. What about this other one? Nope. And just continually, it, even if you tell it exactly what you're trying to do, well, very often these weird edge cases that that's exactly where you and I live is these yeah. weird edge cases. Like someone's like, Oh, you can't, you can't make this thing explode and, and like mathematically take over everything. You can't, it's not possible. Well, you can, if you have large numbers, very large numbers, very, very, very large yeah. numbers, but not so large that they turn into infinity, which would cause problems in the processor, but just large enough that if you added anything else to it, it would become infinity and all these weird downstream effects start happening. You can't rely on ChatGPT to understand anything about that. You really just have to try it. And then you try it. It's like, oof, there's yeah. this weird thing that happens. Learn how to assess your results. <laughs> teach, take that as a new skill. Yeah. What scares me about this is that once that starts bleeding into auto-remediation for code vulnerabilities, or not even vulnerabilities, but just like logic mishaps, um, where a bug is a bug is a bug. Maybe it's not a security bug, but it's still a bug that needs to get fixed. 
I'm scared at the chief revenue officer who's going to see, oh, you can fix 90% of our errors with one click. Let's do that and see the fallout. And yeah, who comes well, along and does depends. that profit analysis yeah, and see well. if it decides if it's worth it? Come on, Couscous, you know they're not going to do that. <clears throat> a buddy of mine worked for disbelief. A, a big airline and they had some application whitelisting technology and they turned it on. They just go ahead and turn it on. And everything broke, like really everything broke. So they spent a lot of time like making it to the point where it was finally starting to work and they got everything kind of working sort of, right? But everyone is so gun shy because they knew that this thing breaks all, like everything <laughs> all the time. Anytime you shell out to anything because everything's every, I mean, everything's really poorly designed on the internet. <laughs> everything's shelling out to something, calling something or whatever. And so what happened is they didn't, they developed something it would break for whatever reason. And they'd they'd blame this software. And they're like, we need to shut that software off because it's breaking this thing that's that's totally valid that should work. Shut the software off and it was still broken. Like, oh, oh, it was actually our code. It had nothing to do with that application whitelisting technology. So they'd fix their thing and then they'd never turn it back on. And it just, it kept going forever until all that stuff went away. I, I, think, I think people are just, far too lazy and they're never gonna they're just gonna whatever is the whatever is the easiest fix so that 90 percent if if uh if it breaks like 10 percent of apps or whatever they're just like ah wind it back like forget it yeah and i say that completely unsubstantiated too yeah, no no i, I, I might add but i, know, I, I know. think everyone should be watching and waiting just like ready to see what happens because i think that the moment to react is going to be pretty interesting no what will happen I, I think i think what will happen is it'll say here's the recommended fix mm-hmm. and you click the button because oh, they, that's the button clicker's fault. Yeah, the button clicker's <laughs> fault. Exactly. That's what it's going to be. And this is why you security doesn't push fixes. You shouldn't have clicked that button. Yeah. I clicked the button exactly once in my life. And after that, I realized I really, really, really need to be much more careful. I, I made something so it was just an integer. I felt like this thing should only be an integer. It's just a user ID. It's always an integer. But it turns out there's it's actually a floating point. Uh, you can have some users and it uses the floating point to decide whether they're sub users of the user. Oh, interesting. And like so a parent child relationship. Right. So the period blew everything up and a, a huge section of users couldn't log into the system. I'm like, Oh geez. Right. Now <laughs> easy fix, but is boy, that a security vulnerability or just a terrible business logic flaw? Uh, and you're only going to see that in code. Yeah. Now our static code analysis engines finding that. No, of why course not? not. No, that, that's what the manual code review is for, yeah. which is one more reason why, you know, as I know as much as we want to talk about automation and how you need it for scaling out, the human will never be invaluable in those situations. Now, the 1% of things that they find, are they going to matter? They probably only matter when it actually breaks everything. Mm-hmm. You're not going to know until after the fact, mm-hmm. but I think that's just part of living in reality here, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So something that I think that you and I are both passionate about is, um, breaking the paradigm of what people think hackers look like visually. Um, this has always bugged me. My entire career has bugged me because I look at TV, I look at Hollywood and I'm like, what <laughs> is going on? Yeah. I mean, certainly there are people who, you know, have 8,000 piercings and, you know, dress like cats and whatever. I mean, yeah, it's, it happens, but uh, that happens in any cohort of any cross section of humanity. It's sure. not relegated to hackers. So, what, what do you what do you think about that? I think that Defcon is a great example of the types of people that you see in this industry. And some of them are there for the, the flavor, for the fun, for a little bit of the flair. Other people are there because they're really nerdy about how things can break and they really get into like some of the fun aspects of it. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, Hollywood takes what their, what their low-hanging fruit is. 
And the low-hanging fruit is four hoodies on with gloves in a dark basement with uh, a balaclava on. I don't know about you, but typing with gloves is horrendous. And anyone who's ever thought about that knows that that's not how <laughs> hackers are actually going at it. Um, but no, it, it's a discipline just like anything else. You have people who build software. You have people who are good at breaking it. And, you know, today I think it's good. I think it's going to change because we have classroom to, classrooms today of people taking security courses. You can get a full master's in cybersecurity at... Most universities. Did they issue gloves at the door or how does that work? Well, I think that you're going to be in that class and you're going to look around <laughs> you and you're going to see the same demographics that you see in other computer science classes. Mm-hmm. You're going to see the same problem with like not having enough women represented. You're going to see 90% of it being white dudes and or depending on which school you go to. And I don't think the demographic is going to look any different from a cybersecurity class versus a regular computer science or a cybersecurity focused discipline versus a regular computer science one or any STEM problem. Right. And so what is that going to look like 10 or 20 years from now? Those people are going to be in industry and saying that is a whole lot of crap right now. A few of us are saying that. And those that do say it pretty loudly mm-hmm. that like Hollywood hacking is kind of out of control. Mm-hmm. And some people uh, really go along with it and maybe that's fun and that's okay. There's no one saying you can't have fun in this sort of industry, but no hacker, hacker, everyday people. Yeah. You know, I like gardening in the backyard. I like to, when people say like, you don't look like a hacker, which happens very frequently. uh, I said, have you ever heard of the concept of a wolf in sheep's clothing? Because I get into terrified them (laughs) because I get invited to a lot of boardrooms and uh, that would have never been possible if I had dressed like, you know, crazy, whatever, you know, spiked stuff all over the place and chains and whatever. Like it just, and also that's annoying when I'm trying to code. Uh, <laughs> like, now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think that if you're going to sell that image, you also need to carry a big stick too. No, Otherwise, just, you're just going to look like a fool. I'm sorry, I cannot code like that. <laughs> I, I'm, in a, I'm in a t-shirt and I'm just in my jeans and I'm just, yeah, whatever. Uh, it, you know, it's funny because on the average day that I'm actually doing real security work as opposed to just talking about security or whatever, I really, I just look like an average guy. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm like... I'm just at a computer. I'm probably not even typing. I'm just thinking about typing. I'm like thinking what I'm going to do next. Like, hmm, I'm looking at the wall. I just look like I'm daydreaming, but I'm not. I'm thinking about the, what I'm working on. But I mean, I'm certainly not whatever Hollywood wants me to look like. You know, <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it even. Like what? what's uh, Rami Malek's character on Mr. Robot? Uh, Elliot something, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, yeah, not all of us are like weirdly neurotic with multiple personality disorders or whatever. Now some, there, some there maybe, are, there, and there, that's fine. There, there are those, there are those, but it's not, I, I think like that would make everyone believe that everyone who is a hacker has that sort of persona. But the, the same, same thing. It's really not true. Any, anybody who works in like wall street, for instance, obviously there's yeah, they're a not all super neurotic or whatever. And then there's the kind that are, you know, totally normal and you grab a beer with and they're fine, you know? And it's, it's really just the cross section of society as, at large. Yeah. So do you think it's going to change uh, as years go by? Has it gotten better? You know, you have a longer viewpoint on this than I do. It has already gotten a little bit better. You're starting to see like the sort of Hollywood is taking like the the Hollywood A-listers and turning them into hackers. Like, oh, you know, here's here's somebody who's very large and muscular and beefy and also can code or whatever. Well, so hey, guys, or, guys. Thor is a hacker too, you know, Chris Hemsworth, you know, he was in that last movie. Exactly. I mean, I think we're, we're seeing, we're seeing a, a number of examples of people who are bold and beautiful or whatever. And, uh, and, and still hackers in Hollywood, but 
I'm not sure we've gotten over that diatribe. I'm not sure like people are like ready it's to fruit for sure. People want people to look like that. They want them to be represented in this way. And well, there's a problem with that because what is the, what is the relationship that it's that person criminal, that person bad, mm-hmm. not doing anything good, not, not understanding how things can be made better. And that's what really, really what we're doing when we're under, understanding how vulnerabilities can be manipulated. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm now those of us who are not actual black hats looking for ways to personally gain from a system. We're looking at how we can identify vulnerabilities and then fix it because we want to make the product better because we want to make the customer safer. What about that is criminal, but the outside connotation is that hacker is bad. Yeah. Well, and we're still trying to break it. It's, it's a rough road. I don't think we're going to get there quickly. Um, but to your point, there's a lot of social engineers who are women who look absolutely normal. Like you walking down the street, you're just like, that's an attractive person. I would like to go on a date with maybe, or they're just a normal human being just at a coffee shop or, yeah. you know, maybe somebody who works at a local convenience store or something. They will completely destroy you. They will break into everything you own and own everything. And they can just talk their way into environments or whatever. And they don't look like hackers. Um, I see a lot of, um, men who will dress kind of similar to me, not necessarily exactly like me, but they will dress professionally and they'll just kind of walk their way, kind of muddily, kind of whatever. They got a clipboard. They look like they're supposed to be where they're supposed to be or whatever. And they just look like a normal employee and they'll just walk right through your environment. Mm-hmm. And of course, nation states are obviously doing the exact same thing. Yeah. They have the clipboard just like we have the clipboard and a plausible reason to be there and a plausible reason to be, Oh, whoops, I'm in the wrong place or whatever. A cover story. If they, things get screwed up, we need to be much more careful about the stereotypes and go like, wow, that is not. And not downplay someone who can just totally right. walk in unopposed. Right. Right. Absolutely. The best I've ever done is, you know, you carrying the ladder and having a bright vest on mm-hmm. pretty much everyone will hold open the door for you. Even yeah. the one that's, that's badge entry. Yep. But that's a pretty obvious example and tried and true, you know, years and, and years over. Yeah. It still works. It absolutely still works. Um, I've seen some examples of this, uh, men and women in various different situations, and they've actually gone up to the people who hired them and asked them questions and, you know, try to interact with them and get information out of the people who knew that this was happening. Mm -hmm. They just didn't know what they looked like ahead of time. Yeah. You cannot, you cannot blanket say somebody looks like this and is just good at computers or understands how to break into things. Absolutely foolish. Yeah, I agree. Um, have you ever run into uh, um, Kareem Hajazi? Um, he was on the podcast. Um, no, I don't believe so. Uh, but he, he had a kind of industrial espionage background. And so he would, you know, kind of show up at the place and kind of, you know, just act like he was supposed to be there. And I would say he looks completely normal. Like he's just a normal human being, like nothing super special in one way or another, you know? Well, I think what, what we learned from this is that you can't, obviously you can't judge someone like who looks normal and who doesn't mm-hmm. because all you're going to do is discount the actual attacker and well, then well, normal put, in the context, put your focus on someone who really isn't one. normal in the context of, of the movie hackers, let's say, sure. you know, like I got like, you know, whatever regalia on me that says I'm a hacker, you know, <laughs> you know, getting stopped in customs and they know who I am well before I get there. And so I'm not wearing, I hack stuff t-shirt, you know, I'm, I'm dressed nicely, you know, just kind of normal business traveler. Just, you look around me, you would, I would just blend in completely, but you know, they know who I am because they know you cannot rely on what I'm wearing. Right. And that's what, how I think the rest of the industry has to treat us. 
Um, so it's just a matter of, um, I think Hollywood likes certain tropes. Because they're easy. Mm-hmm. It's all, that's why I say they're low-hanging fruit. It's just an easy thing to go back to. It's tried and true. Mm-hmm. It is going to keep happening. We're going to keep getting irritated about it. <laughs> Hopefully with enough time it changes. And I think that it's mostly going to change with this next generation of professionals coming out who have who are used to classrooms of people who just look the same as any other classroom that they've been in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit getting out of the echo chamber. We're really good at talking about InfoSec to InfoSec people, but how about getting out to the rest of the world? And that's where I think it's really difficult. And you have to have a different, more delicate conversation. Yeah. So what does that look like? How do we start that conversation? How do we say, because everyone's trying not to do security. They don't want to do security. They want to build product. They want to get on with their lives. They want to download that cute cat video. Like how do we start communicating in a way that makes more sense? Because if, if, if I say you could save, um, you know, 15% or more on your car insurance by clicking on this link or whatever, you're going to a lot of people go, yeah, I want to save 15%. That makes a lot of sense. But you don't get a lot of people going, hey, you need to download this patch. You know, like that it just doesn't it's work that way. a small subsection of people. So I know that myself personally, and this is from the lens of someone who is, you know, security is top of mind. Mm-hmm. I really don't like using products that don't have MFA. I really don't like using products that have only SMS MFA. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm less than 1% of the total population it's, it's a tough problem to come across and try to explain to others why this matters. And it's the same old concept of as security increases, convenience decreases. We used to use that as a weapon. So at eBay, we would, we would deploy MFA if we didn't want you ever to come back to the platform <laughs> because we knew your, these people. For your bots and your problem accounts? Well, because no, these people are the problem accounts. Yeah, yeah. the people were just kept getting compromised. We're like, look, you got to go. So we give them MFA and then they go because they get too annoyed. It was too annoying. Um, yeah. A session timeout every like three minutes. <laughs> and log in again? <laughs> Screw this. <laughs> I mean, the more annoying you can make it physical tokens, they get lost easily. And I'm sorry, you got to go. <laughs> That's a different kind of uh, weaponization towards problem customers. Yeah. Problem clients. Yeah. Well, it worked really well. Um, we saw a massive drop off of the problem users and that means our customer support costs are lower. And uh, yeah, eBay was a weird world, my friend. I am very glad I'm out of there, um, but I learned a lot. I remember an eBay vulnerability being on that top 10 web hacks. So I think from 2014, mm-hmm. There was a uh, a CSERF token that, and so, so for, for the viewers who are not aware what CSERF is, it, it's largely eliminated today, but you still find it in a couple of applications. You're basically creating a request that you send to a targeted user and you force them to do an action that they would otherwise not do. So think about forcing someone else to change their password, but you're having them change the password to something that you know. So now you can log in with that username and that password. Well, what you could do on eBay was do a forgot password request with a known username and then the response to that request contained a CSERF token tied to that account. And so now you could craft a targeted request for that particular user. You still have to send the request to them and get them to click on it. You know, mm-hmm. That's an extra step and yep. a manual one. Yep. But no, that's a fun one from eBay. Social engineering. Yeah. It's funny you say that that has gone away. Is that true? It's really gone away? I if, think it feels like it's well, all over the place. I mean, I, I think feel like modern, I see it less. Modern frameworks and have gotten rid of it, but, but modern, uh, modern frameworks have gotten rid of it. It's and all over the place. When though, you right? find it, well, that's the thing. When you find it on one application, it exists everywhere in that application. It's systemic. Mm-hmm. And so you have a many to one situation. Mm-hmm. I don't think I find it on many applications. And when I do find it, it exists everywhere on it. Usually mm-hmm. everything is C surfable. 
Okay, so that's, that's another good question. Are you primarily getting brought into old applications or modern applications, like Greenfield, or they've been around for a long time? It's a mix of both. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it's legacy, and not to mention the argument of that once things hit the prod, they're often, now they're legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's just Starting the reality, right? right? Now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they're like, oh, we're not developing that thing anymore. It's like, are you still selling it to customers? Yes. Then we have to do a security assessment on mm-hmm. it, and there's CSERF everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it depends on if they're using secure frameworks or not and if that framework is configured correctly because people can use secure frameworks incorrectly and sometimes they'll do that for convenience. And that yeah. just comes down to is security part of the requirements or not? Most often the time, not. Now, there are some mature organizations out there who say this is the hill that we are not going to die on because they've invested in an internal security team, because they understand the cost of the risk that goes out, which has already been like several magnitudes of delicate conversations happening before that developers even learning about what their requirements are and why security matters. A lot of work has been done before anyone ever gets to that point. But any startup out there, it's just not something that they have time to do in the day. They might have one dev person who is security minded, but again, if they're saying that can't go to prod, that can't go to prod, that can't go to prod, there's no product. If there's no product, there's no company. And so you have to, that security engineer basically needs to act delicately with what hill are they going to die on? What is worth putting controls in place for? And CSERF should be one of them. Maybe it's something they consider as a medium. We'll fix that in 90 days. Mm-hmm. And then that well, gets kicked off to it 180 days. It and, oh, that's business accepted risk. Okay. So what do you do as that security engineer? You have to get a little stoic and decide that, okay, here are the things that I can change and here are the things that I can't. And you have to make a really tough choice. Like these things really bother me, but I can fix these now. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you are in your career, how comfortable you are making waves, and not everyone is comfortable making those waves, sometimes they might just need to go with the flow because maybe it's not anything technology related. Maybe they're at a point in life where they can't make those waves. I certainly was at earlier in my career. Now I'm at a point where I'm like, that's wrong. And we're going to raise all kind of hell about it. But you don't make any friends when you do that. So you also need to have a sense of, is this the right time to have that, that particular conversation? Is this the hill and, you want to die and on? are you really right? <laughs> because if someone wants to play stump the chump and they know something that you don't know, mm-hmm. you just look like a fool in the situation. And now you've not earned anyone's trust. You've not earned anyone's respect. You've not solidified yourself as a domain expert. And it's a real uphill battle from there to yeah. regain that trust. Yeah. Amen. Now you're seen as adversarial instead of someone who's trying to provide value. Okay, so well, how do you feel about red versus blue teams? Like you're coming from the red team perspective on almost all this part of the conversation, but what about the blue team? Like where's their role and how should they be acting? I've done blue team work in the past and it is tough. And and maybe I just personally think it's tough because it's always work for me. No, it's tough. And, and like my gosh. <laughs> if you're doing um, it well. <laughs> there are so many ways to fail because the I think the tried and true argument is that as an attacker, you only need one way in. Mm-hmm. And now that's assuming that the goal is to like root a box, right? Maybe we get like one bad thing that we can get in. Um, you still can't sacrifice having a shield just for the sake of a big sword. It's about taking this swath of thing that is unmanageable and bringing it to something manageable. And that's all that defense does. That's all the blue team does in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's not going to eliminate risk that's unreal. That doesn't happen in the real world. And anyone who's saying they can is likely blowing smoke you probably need to figure out like what they actually know and what they don't. Mm. Um, or it's a salesperson just like spewing stuff. But the purpose of a blue team, in my opinion, is to take the swath of things that's unmanageable, bring it to something manageable. And for the red team to determine, is that really the threat landscape or is it a little bit bigger? Is there something the blue team is unaware of? I think red team is more fun 
but I would not downplay the validity and use of a proper blue team. And that does make more effort uh, possible for the red team. And so when you're thinking about when is an attacker going to give up, you know, it's as soon as they find that first thing to get themselves in. So if you can make it more time expensive, you're doing a good job. If, if it takes someone six months of targeted work to take your enterprise down instead of, you know, a Saturday lunch, good job, blue team. It's a hard thing to solve, but I think you're doing the right thing. Now it takes a little bit of both to have a good solid solution and not everyone can afford that. If you have a company that has a, a solid dedicated internal red team and an internal blue team, you're light years ahead of all the small medium businesses out there. So you said the there's only, you only have to find the one vulnerability to get in as a red teamer. Um, the adage is true in reverse. If I find one way to decloak that red teamer and find out who they are and not, not just an address them. If I can find out who they are, that's all it takes because now I can send the police officers to their physical door and get them. So red teamers, uh, the true red team, like a, you know, the, the actual slow, over a year sort of assessment. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the real bad guys that we really worry about. They really only have one shot at it as well, theoretically. Now, there's a lot of reasons that's not true, one of which is extradition treaties. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of limited in who we can get over here. Uh, but I think there is something, too, that we've made it way harder, on average, for bad guys to do their job, and yet they persist, and yes, yet they still continue to hack into things. So why, why is that? Why, are, why is the blue team still behind? Well, imagine being a blue team who's trying to stop, uh, and, I, and I say this lovingly, but um, human incompetence. Phishing, as an example. Social engineering, as an example. The human is the weakest link. That is not a technology problem. That's a scrutiny problem. Mm-hmm. But, but technical controls, let's say. Okay, technical controls. Um, again, I like going back to bring your own device. If someone, if you have an organization, most modern organizations today let you bring you know, your smartwatch, your smartphone, your laptop, plug it into the internal network, and I asked you to turn all that off before you got in here. Yeah, yeah, it's all, yeah. I'm not on your Wi-Fi right now. It's an map scanning watch, by the way. Um, they can only protect what they know about, and it's a constant ongoing effort to understand what they don't. You've got your known knowns and your known unknowns, right? Mm-hmm. And so they really are doing the best that they can, and then when something happens, because something will happen, what does your incident response look like? And is that a process that's been fully played out? The reaction time is also real because I think you have to accept that, hey, things are going to fall down. And when they do, what do we do? Have we had this conversation yet or not? And that's just another part of the blue team playbook. How do you react when the bad thing happens? Because it probably will. Or it's already happened and now you have to be that person to make the uncomfortable call that says, I found a rootkit on a particular thing and it looks like it was installed six months ago. That is a tough first conversation to have. That happens pretty frequently. Yeah. I would say pretty much every company I talk to, they already compromised before I get there. Yeah. And now does the CISO get fired because of that? Or do they try to turn a losing situation into well, a winning what, situation? What I will tell you. Diplomacy takes over. What, what I will tell you is that really drags out the sales cycle. <laughs> 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 because you went there trying to sell one thing and now they're like, holy crap, we're already compromised and, you know, spinning up all these resources trying to do. Yeah, it's just a mess. Yeah. So I kind of don't think that's a great sales strategy, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but I see, <laughs> you, I see a, two main situations happen in that, in that situation. Um, 
there's the team that is always on the ball, identifying all the problems that could happen and being really, really ahead of the game. And when they do their job right, it looks like they've done nothing at all. And then you have the other side, the org who is sitting back and listening and waiting. And then the bad thing happens and it's all hands on deck. And we're going to make a lot of commotion about it. We're going to send emails and legals involved and all right, cool. And everyone's like, good job. We did no proactive things to fix that. Why is that good job instead of the other team who made sure that the ship was steady the whole time? Mm -hmm. You got the ship that was steady the whole time versus the one that just took a cannonball. They patched it quickly, but that one took on water. They're the firefighters. They're heroes. Come on, man. Absolutely. But, but you know, but I, see, I see teams operate in either one of those two, two different ways, and they, they're both successful, but you have to tell a different story on each one. And it's a little bit more of a convincing argument, I guess, for saying, like, here's the validity of my security operations, Senator. Yeah, this is actually one of the reasons. Another one of the questions I used to ask pretty frequently is, tell me the last time you were hacked, or tell me the most interesting time you were hacked. And some people were like, I've never been hacked. I'm like, Okay, well, you have, and now you should, you're probably not qualified for this if you don't know when. Uh, you know, you just you clicked on that one wrong link, you downloaded the wrong one thing, you know, your computer's not working right suddenly, you know, there's there's always this thing. All these enterprises are compromised, every freaking one of them. You know, I feel like the older I get, the more I click on all the links, despite everyone saying don't do that. Uh-huh. But, but you know, now I know to like have a separate environment for yes, it, and this yes, is a safe yes. place to look at that, and I'm you're curious. A little, you're a little bit different. Well, a little bit. Um, <laughs> definitely when someone says like, hey, I clicked on this thing, I'm like, send me the link. Yeah, let, let's take that apart. Let's see where did it go? Who's calling back out to us? Okay, wait, wait. So quick aside. So when I was at eBay working on the phishing team, uh, they sent me a link. I was also working on authentication at the same time. And they're like, Robert, tell us why this authentication link isn't working. And I'm like looking at the email. And I'm like, you mean the, what's wrong with the phishing site? I don't know what you're asking exactly. And they're like, it's a phishing site. I'm like, yeah, why, why are you, what? I don't understand why. What do you mean? What do you mean? Is it a phishing site? You sent me a phishing link. What are you talking about? Like every one of us clicked on it. All of us authenticated to it. <laughs> okay. The entire customer support team had tried it and were all frustrated that they couldn't authenticate. Um, and so, great. and so that, that's a, that was a team that was designed to stop that and they still fell for it. I mean, I was the only one out of, I'm, I'm probably 30, 40 people who managed to Yikes. like, what the hell? <laughs> See, and then there's the opposite true where like the phishing exercises that go against the whole company and like some, only like two people in the security team know about it. Everyone on the security team gets a, an obvious phishing email where you hover over the link and it's an RFC 1918 address. And you're just yeah. like, which one of you is messing around today? <laughs> like, it kind of takes the fun out of it. You're like, I know this is something internal, but it's yeah. not because you looked at the message. You just looked at the link and realized yeah, this is going they're to they're just has lazy. an obvious tracker. They should, they should have had an external DNS pointing to RFC 1918. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Although I think Chrome has stopped that recently, but whatever. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't tried it. All right, so you think that blue team is harder than red team? Personally, um, yeah. and that's just because I maybe I'm not as good at it. And that's okay. There's a lot to be really good at in this industry, mm-hmm. almost too much. You know, your domain expertise or the way I explain it to people, it usually follows a T. You got the thing that you're really good at, and then as you get further along in your career, you get these little nuggets of information mm-hmm. where you can start going a mile wide and inch deep. You're a very classy man, but I think it actually is harder. Uh, I think blue team is actually harder. I remember talking to one very prominent security expert years and years ago. And he said something to the effect of um, blue team is a losing man's game. If you want to, if you want to win, you're on the red team because it's unfair. I know it's unfair. I, I, I know it's unfair, but he's it's, like, you'll, you'll get in team, but you'll get in unfair. if you're on the red team. 
Well, it, it was, it was interesting. It, it forced me to think about it for reals for the first time. I'd really never thought about the difference between the two teams, right? Like, okay, I'm on the blue team. I'm working my ass, my ass off. Let's say I'm working like 80 hours a week, really, really trying to do a good job. Yeah, but I got a thousand machines I got to comp- like protect and they're all controlled by different groups and with different controls mm-hmm. and different operating systems and different access controls into them or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to get there. You know, it's funny that you say that because the product security team at any company has the exact same problem. I have a thousand different teams with 10,000 different repos. Half of them are using their own rollout of a CICD pipeline and you want me to automate security? Yeah. All right, I'll start with this team. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, maybe we go to that team. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I've had this situation happen once before where you plug in um, software composition analysis tools and you say, hey, at this CVSS 3.0 score, the build gets blocked. And we started at 9.9 and we started working our way down. When do you think that screen test happened where someone said, absolutely not, this completely kills our development, we can't make forward progress, this has to stop? Mm-hmm. Take a guess. Where do you think th- that number hit? I have no idea. <laughs> I thought I would get to 7.5. We got to 9.7. Wow. At 9.7, they were like, this is blocking too many things, too many third-party things that we need to, to build our stuff out. And so as the person who's trying to automate scalable internal security processes, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what kind of support do I actually have from the engineering team? You know, I have a charter that I'm trying to accomplish and I'm trying to understand, you know, is this, are, is the engineering team actually an adversary here that I have to they are. factor in? Absolutely, they are. Probably. Yeah. And then how well, do you have that conversation? But, but so because is, if you talk to them that way. But so is the board. And so, Fair. and their customers, and they're all adversaries in the grand scheme of things because you're working against their natural, what, they're, what they would do at the lowest common denominator. And yeah. this can't be that. That's the biggest problem. So as a security manager or someone who's trying to have that conversation for more resources, Mm -hmm. I've always put it in terms of real dollars, even if I'm faking it, as best of an estimate as I can. Good for you. Like, here's this thing that I'm doing. I think that it's going to save us this many dollars worth of value. And, you know, if we do something wrong, here's the the dollars of value that it cost us. Imagine incident response where like that thing happens. Okay, but reverse it. Reverse it. Instead of saying what you reduce the cost, increase the value of the company. Because that's yeah. money. And that's that- a more diplomatic way to say it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done this in the past with incident response where, you know, we find a bad thing. The security team knee jerks, drops everything to handle the thing and we do it. And then everyone says, good job, but it's not just good job. It's okay. This cost us 20 highly paid professionals, 20 hours of time each, not to mention the opportunity cost loss of the thing they should have been working on. Mm-hmm. And the real thing to say there is like, Hey, this cost us, you know, $160,000 worth of man hours. And here's what we put in place to stop that from happening in the future. Even if you're honest about that, it can be taken in a real negative way, but that's the reality of it. I think that you, but how much do you increase the value of the company by doing it? Right. Because I think companies are worth way less. I've talked about this on a couple of other podcasts, but I think companies are worth wildly less than they think they are. It's just an unrealized negative valuation. They haven't figured out that they're actually not worth what they think. It's kind of like having a patent. You're like, Oh, we have this patent. It's a great patent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not worth anything because this other guy has a, a, a patent that invalidates your patent or has prior art or whatever. So you think your company is worth millions and billions or whatever, and actually it's worth nothing. So you you're you have an unrealized negative association, uh, negative value associated with the, the total value of your company. And computer security is all that. It's, it's mm-hmm. all these little micro um, negatives that you just haven't added up yet. 
But if you were to fix them, you've actually gone from that negative number to where you actually think you should be. Right. You're, you think you're worth $10 billion. Well, you're actually worth like 50 bucks. You're worth nothing. <laughs> but if you could fix all these things, you're worth close to what you think you are. Even still, I think that when you talk with, talk about vulnerabilities and risk in the terms of dollars, that's a language that the other departments can understand. Totally. Otherwise, you're like, oh, let me tell you about the CVSS 3.0 score or 3.1 with temperamental, like environmental factors. And Amen. their eyes glaze over before you said the second number. Mm -hmm. um, but when you can say, you know, this $10,000 pen test that I purchased, we found the equivalent of what would be $75,000 in bug bounty findings because 10 of them are SQL injections. Now you're telling the story of like, hey, this was a valuable effort for our time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think enough security people are talking about the effort that they're doing in terms of dollars, even if it's an approximation, because um, mm -hmm. it doesn't translate otherwise. Mm -hmm. You're not talking to security professionals anymore. You're talking to revenue officers. You're talking about people who keep the lights on. Yeah. And do they look at the, the security team as an insurance center or a cost center? And that is a very philosophical and diplomatic conversation to have. And it needs to, it needs to switch. If we want to be an adult industry, we have to switch. We have to change that conversation to be dollars and cents. We have to treat it as if it's a value add. Otherwise, why would you do it? There is there's no other reason you'd ever do it. You install a bunch of software on your computer so that something happens, so that you add value to things. You run power. That's OPEX. You have a light. That's CapEx. Like mm -hmm. these things are all things that can be put into buckets that have negative and positive consequences associated with their ownership, let's say. And if you were to sell those things, they're worth something. They're worth something negative or positive. If I have a huge amount of operational expense because like a ton of headcount, that's worth negative amounts to my company. It's not worth very much. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're getting something else out of it, some intellectual property or whatever, but the people are worth negative, not positive, negative. And you know, maybe there's some acquires in there that you really need them for some other like social media reasons or something, but everybody else is a negative. The physical, physical machines, the, you know, the intellectual property, the, the buildings or whatever, that's all CapEx. It's all sunk cost. It's worth something. If you were to sell it again, it would be worth something. Security also is worth things. If you fix something, now that software is worth something. If it if it's not fixed, it's not worth that. It's worth less than that. It's this unrealized loss that you just haven't accounted for. I think we can I think we can phrase everything in the way that the board will no longer get bored by us. But right now, <laughs> I feel at, they should kick us out of the room because we're just kids. We have no idea what's going on as an industry. I think we really not done what we need to do. So that, I think that leads into another interesting point. Um, I've seen CSOs and CISOs report to legal. I've seen some report to CEOs. I've seen some report to chief revenue officers. And mm -hmm. I think that that really tells you a lot about the culture of the company that you might be joining mm -hmm. and kind of where that chief security person sits in terms of buy-in. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the C, if the chief security officer reports to the CTO, why is that person not a peer? Because each of these pillars are people who are experts in their particular thing. Why does the business get to mandate what security controls are? Mm -hmm. And then the chief security officer has to say, okay, well, that's just the cards that we were dealt. Um, I think that too often they're not equals in the conversation to say, no, this is the bare minimum and we have to have MFA mm -hmm. and we have to have session expirations this minutes long because we're a bank, you know, uh, Opposed to Facebook, who has I've, no session expiration because they want their customers always logged yeah. in, and you look in business context appropriately. That makes sense. 
I, I've been more and more thinking that they should report to the CFO because the CFO is the real risk officer of the company. Right. Every, not just information. Not Everything. just information. Every kind of it makes risk. makes total sense. Uh, so if you have them there, then at least they're talking, they're forced to have the conversation about money and dollars and cents. Otherwise, they get kicked out of the room. You have to talk about this context of the value to the company. So you have the CTO over there doing, you know, magic or whatever, but it has a PL attached to it. So he's still reporting back to the CFO ultimately. Like everybody mm-hmm. ultimately goes to that CFO, um, including the the sales team, including marketing. Like everybody rolls up in the CFO kind of in some weird way. Otherwise, what are you doing here? If you're not improving the revenue or the value of the company, get out. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Absolutely. And that's what we should be trying to do. Um but if you Do bury them, if you bury them under the CTO, you have compromised values there. And yeah. you know, you're, you're stuck in a situation where you have to do the best that you can. And that's, that's the reality. Sometimes you just have to suck it up and do that, do the and, best that you can, but there's extra limitations. And, and, there. To be, and to be clear, explain why that's a, a problem to the audience. I think that's worth mentioning. Sure. So think back to that uh, explanation I talked about earlier, where we were, we had a control in place for automated code de- deployments and 9.7 was considered too toxic to ever, ever go to. And that's because the chief information security officer reported to the chief technology officer. The final say goes to the CTO. And if they say, hey, we need this for things to go out, your hands are kind of tied. And so the security team goes we, back who to Who are the, you going to yell at? <laughs> your boss yourself? is the one. <laughs> yeah. You know, your it's like, boss is the one who tells you to do it. Totally. And so it's like, okay, this is the cards that I've dealt. What, what can I control? What can I make improvements on? Because this clearly is not one of those areas. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you don't block on those things, but you still alert and report on them. Now security has to have an extra pipeline where they are allocating resources to keeping an eye on that thing where they know 9.7 CVE, like third party things are being embedded into the product. And you have to start focusing instead on compensating controls because they might be there, which is not a bad thing to do, but we all have finite time and you all have finite resources. And so given what you're going to spend your entire organization, your security organization's effort on in a week, you don't want it to be anything unnecessary. And that could have been less necessary. Mm-hmm. All right. So what do you think about white box versus black box testing? What do you, uh, where do you land on this? Cause I think a lot of people are kind of passionate in one dimension or another. Uh, if you had to choose, you only get pick one, which, which would you go for? I'm going to give you the cop out answer. Mm-hmm. It depends. No, because that's the, on. that's the reality. That's the reality. <laughs> Obviously a black box assessment, uh, where someone has not already done a white box assessment is more fun. Mm-hmm. If someone has done a white box assessment and, and, for, for the viewers who don't understand the difference, a white box assessment is when you're given inf- underlying information about the target that you're assessing. You might Usually have, the code. Yeah, you have the source code in hand. You might have credentials already. Mm-hmm. You might um, be given an access point that's internal already, and so we'd call it an assumed compromise test. For black box, you're not giving any underlying information. It's mostly like, here's www.website.com and go. It, it's exactly what most attackers normally have. Right. And you're going to find different things between both of those focuses because the person who's doing the black box assessment isn't distracted by any internal things. They're going to look at it from a fresh view. That is exactly how the attacker is going to see it. So it's a little bit more of a real world scenario, but at the same time, you don't have six months to do the assessment. Not often, not if you're on an internal security team, you might have 40 hours and it's like, okay, I've got Monday through Friday and we have an all hands on Wednesday and there's a, full team meeting on Thursday. And so you really only have 22 hours. And I had 800 emails to answer. Right. And, you, and, right. and you've got, you've got uh, knee jerk things coming in from incident response. You have a mentor, you have someone that you're mentoring. You have two interns who need some guidance. So now you really have 15 hours and you do the best that you can. 
Um, whereas with the white box assessment, there's different value there. I have the entire source code. Okay, so I can run that through a static code analysis thing while I still look at the application and assess the login flow while looking at the login logic. And that'll let you know really quickly, is there SQL injection there? Because I'm looking at the queries. There's no 15 minute rule. There's no, I'm gonna spend from Monday until Thursday on this thing, thinking it's vulnerable when it's not really. You can look at the code and determine. Um, so when I say it depends, I really mean that because mm. I think that that's, that's the reality. You're gonna find different things with different approaches. They're not often gonna be the same things. There's gonna be some overlap, but you have different value adds for each of the different assessments. Mm. And the white box assessment might be a little bit more time valuable because you know, you're given the keys to the kingdom basically. It's just, okay, go find the risk with it. But you're not gonna understand where an actual attacker on the outside really, really will look at. I like to start with black box. I just start with black box. Even if you're going to give me white box, just don't. Well, because with the black box assessment, you're going to intimately understand the application. You're going to have to go through some of the pain points of like, oh, that didn't work how I thought it was. Well, why? Mm-hmm. And through doing that, you get an intimate understanding of how it works. Mm-hmm. The white box assessment, you're going to skip that entire step and yep. you're not going to understand any context. But if there's uh, admin credentials, I always like to have white box at minimum with admin credentials just to see what I can force the admin to do from the admin's console's perspective. Because sometimes there's exploits that are only really visible from their perspective. And it's worth knowing, could there could there have been a way that I, from a black box perspective, I could have elicited this? Or sometimes an admin will like be able to click on a link that I would be able to detect if I had a remote server that was connected to it, like a link on my website or whatever. But the only way to really do exercise that logic is to have access to the internal systems to see it exploited. And... One thing I run into or used to run into a lot was the difference between QA and prod, you know? So like QA, there's no admin running there. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no people on the site. And so that dramatically changes the test because, you know, people aren't interacting with it. You can't get them to click on things because there's nobody there. It's yeah, like a you ghost have to simulate town. All of it. You have to simulate all of it. So uh, in that context, I much prefer white box uh, or at least at minimum, just having admin creds. What are your thoughts when they provide you the application and there is no dev or staging or QA environment? Yeehaw. Uh, (laughs) I I always tell them, I I always tell them, uh, I used to get that quite a bit actually though. So what I would tell them is that you need a prod environment and they're like, this is the prod environment. I'm like, do you have two or more? And they're like, no, I'm like, that's your dev environment. You need a prod environment. And I've actually had that work Mm -hmm. more than telling someone they need a dev environment Mm -hmm. because then I don't know, a light bulb clicks or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and they realize they're testing in prod and anyone saying testing in prod out loud should, you know, should sh- send shivers up your spine, especially if you're an engineer. Oh, if you're a cowboy coder, but even those, like, uh, those test environments, they're not as test as people want to make sure. Them. I mean, they, they still, they, sometimes they're tied to the same database. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, the physical machine is the test box, but the database is the same. Or like SMTP isn't connected. So you can't do email related or, things. Or they'll take a snapshot of the database. So it's still the same content. But now when you're, you know, doing bulk, like whatever, whatever it's, you know, some brute force or something, you're sending emails to like hundreds of thousands of people suddenly through a test server, but it's still getting out to the internet. And there's just all kinds of garbage like that. I did a test assessment once on a staging environment where instead of connecting to the database, they gave me simulated results. So it's like you search for something where they would expect results to come back from the database and just came back with your like John uh, yeah, but then John you're not doing stuff. SQL injection. Right, you're not actually able to test that thing. And I was just like, this is a huge gap. So in the report, I put, was not able to test for SQL injection. Yeah. And they're like, you didn't run the SQL injection test. I'm like, you weren't connected to the database. There's no database there. We have to we have to see if, if the syntax goes through. 
one of the things I really like doing on a, on a white box assessment, well, we'll say a black box assessment that I'm cheating on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see anyone else ever doing this. If I'm working at an enterprise company, I like talking to the marketing team about the application. Mm-hmm. And I say, Hey, you know, you probably don't have a heat map, but can you tell me where everyone mostly goes to? And then can you tell me where everyone mostly does not? Because if you can find the, you know, if you imagine you have a website and the marketing team wants to put most of the good stuff within like three clicks, I believe of the homepage, you know, they want as minimal user interactions as possible to get to the juicy stuff. But if the application is big and there's a lot of stuff, there's going to be multiple layers of interactions to get to whatever might be out there. And I always like getting a shortcut by asking them, what are the areas that no one's clicking on? Like, do you have analytics that tells me 1% of users go to this spot? Because I want to go there and look for vulnerabilities that are likely missed by other manual assessors, Mm -hmm. just by nature of being time boxed. Mm -hmm. I've had a couple of good hits that way. Mm -hmm. And I've not seen anyone really utilize those internal resources. Like who thinks about talking to marketing about pen tests? Literally nobody in security. Right. No one. And that's that's a huge gap because they know where everyone's going to. I'm I'm friends with a lot of really high-end marketing people and they do not talk to, other than me. They don't talk to any other security person. I'm like, you should know your security team. (laughs) And and like, you know, especially when you're thinking with a bug bounty lens on, it's first in best dressed. And so immediately when I'm doing an assessment and if it's something public that everyone's been to for years and years, it's like, okay. Like Facebook or something. Right, right. This 90% of it has likely already been hit by a million million crawlers, a thousand like potential bug bounty hunters. And like, okay, I need something that is like deep into authentication and custom and like way back in the back of the logic, ideally something behind credit card functionality, some other barrier. Mm-hmm. And that's where I start testing. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, even if you're doing uh, like a new bug bounty target, that's just gone live. Like right now I skip past all of the unauth stuff. I go straight to the back and find as much as I can there. Because if you're doing a competition style, yeah, yeah. again, first and best dressed, yes. everyone's going to run automated scanners on the unauth. Don't waste any time there. Yeah. Uh, I've I've definitely broken into some banks straight through the front door. Well, I'm not saying you can't. No, I know, but but the thing is, a lot of those people they'll run the automated tests and they'll just land on these home pages and they can't get past it because there's some capture or whatever, and they're mm-hmm. just done. Like, okay, can't get past here. But if you spend like 10 seconds looking at it, you're like, oh, this is very easily bypassed, and you can write some code, and if you know how to code, and you're past it. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I agree yeah. that is very interesting to to if you can go to the end. But credit card flows, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of pen testers are afraid of them because they don't want to put their personal credit card in there. They don't have a corporate credit card or enough of them to test it properly because they need to buy a bunch of things to test it properly. So they just kind of look at it like, eh, looks fine. I I did some bad input and it didn't fail. And so that's it. You know, that's one area where bug bounty hunters really thrive. If you look at uh, what a bug bounty hunter will do, like someone independent just out there, um, versus someone who's working for a security consultancy. If I'm working for a security consultancy and I'm handed this assessment that involves some credit card functionality, I have to then send a message to my manager saying, hey, I need credit card information, who has to then talk to someone in accounting, who has to get the purchase approved, who has to get the things back to me. And it might be a $5 credit card because they needed to buy something or a $20 one that the whole office uses. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, I can make a $1 transaction. <laughs> I can do this once. Whereas yeah. anyone who's on the bug bounty front, you know, they're just going to go buy, buy a prepaid visa and say, hmm, if I find SQL injection back here, that is worth $10,000. Let's buy a couple hundred dollar cards. We can yeah. use it on multiple assessments. And yeah. just the barrier is gone like that. Well, not gone. Well, and they're still reduced. Yes, reduced, reduced. And that's actually my point is uh, some of these tests require, if you're doing anything automated, they're going to require hundreds of thousands of requests to Absolutely. properly exercise the logic. Uh, so you're not going to do that. And you're not going <laughs> to run that with, with anything credit card attached <laughs> unless you have a prior 
yeah. line of dialogue going with them. Say, hey, give me a test card number that I can run. Exactly. That actually there you go. And there's some people who leave those test credit cards running in prod. Uh, so I've found a lot of issues that way as nice. well. There's about 10, I think, or so that are test, like known test numbers you can use. I remember working with someone once who was working on a bank and they were testing the functionality for transferring funds between one account to another. And like, what's a common sense number to try testing if you have account A with balance 1,000 and account B with balance zero? Negative 1,000. Negative 1,000 sounds good. One sounds good. Negative one sounds good. And the guy immediately tried $1 million. <laughs> well, there's some red flags that go off if you ever try to transfer a million dollars in a you know, because, you know, you're bypassing the client-side validation sitting right. on the server. Whether it's real or not, flags go off, calls start getting made, and that was an awkward day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had to have a chat with that guy. I was like, so here's a good idea for a test, and here's a bad idea. <laughs> not to say you did something bad. <laughs> we did appropriately test the response to something like this happening, but it wasn't part of our goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so everything's moving to API security. What do you think about API security? It's definitely a response to like single, single app web pages are the norm today. And this is where DAS scanners are typically failing. You know, Ajax came around and now everything's all dynamically loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, there's more stuff going on in the DOM and DAS really doesn't have any insight into there unless they're running some clever Selenium emulation, which is CPU expensive and memory expensive. How do you do that against, you know, thousands and thousands of websites week after week after week. It's just a lot of data. And I'm sure it can be done, but it's time expensive and it's resource expensive. Um, Hacking APIs, at the very least, I think are no real different than web applications, provided that you know what the endpoints are. If someone says, hey, go hack my API, and it's api.website.com, and they've not given you like, what do we WSDLs or Swagger files, and it's like, okay, you want me to brute force every URL path and parameter path? They do. They do want that. Yeah, and it's like, okay, I will. Uh, Are you giving me 24 hours or are you giving me a few weeks? How many threads can I run? Can I DOS this thing? I don't want to because I need to get responses back, but like, are you going to pump it with juice to where it can feed me all the bandwidth back? Mm -hmm. And then it's a really simple transactional conversation at that point. It's like, okay, let's, let's not do any of that. Let's assume 50 milliseconds of bandwidth, which is really nice. Here's my dictionary list. Here's my parameters. Here's permutations. And here's the amount of time that I have. Did I find them or not? It's an hour conversation. There's your API test if you want to test brute force. Wow. You're going to miss a lot that way, though. Probably. Like a prob- lot. Probably. But do they want to see it over the wire, or can you just role play that out? You probably can. If you're doing an internal test, internal. and this, this is assuming internal. Internal. Yeah. Okay. If you're external, it's like, okay, yes, I will I will brute force this with everyone out there. Then it comes down to how many threads that I have and how much can the, can the website have. And if they really want to pressure me, you pump up the threads. And if you pump up the threads, the website gets slower there's your bare minimum of amount of information that you're going to gain per second. And you only have a set amount of time. So there's a difference between internal and external APIs as well. So external would be your XML HTTP request, for instance, internal is machine to machine. Um, What do you think about the machine to machine version of the API requests? Are you, are you getting asked to test those kinds of things and how do you feel about that? Not often, but it's something that if I discover, I make sure that we try to put some effort on it Mm -hmm. because it's just as viable of a pivot point as anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm attacking a target and I can compromise that target and that target talks to another thing, there's your clear pivot path Mm -hmm. because all you have to do is compromise that target and listen for network requests. And if it's making things to something else, you don't even need to scan, you know, Hey, just go test that thing. It already trusts me. Um, and let's assume that you're trying to not get caught. Obviously that that's a plus. When I've, you see I've that. never been caught. <laughs> it, no one ever catches you almost this have stuff. To, you almost have very to ch- rare. You know, I, I've been caught before. Have you and really? Yeah. And it's because I've been way too loud and too noisy. 
Um, but also it wasn't against my mission to not get caught. It was about finding the vulnerabilities. Now, if, if the internal team says, Hey, we found you, I'm like, cool, I'm looking for stuff. And this is part of my scope. They've only, if, they've but if only, the goal is to no not one, be no caught, one, no one's ever caught me. The, the only time they've ever caught me ever is when we were working together on it to test this one thing. Yeah. And then it went down as they were looking at it. When I got whatever, caught, it like, was literally like an NMAP T5 scan. Okay. So that is like, yeah pound the thing uh-huh. and it's like i am right here that you're screaming in the network like, i am here come yeah. come say hi to me and yeah. that was that was when but that was okay i was okay with that trade-off at that point and i think that if it's not part of your engagement terms to get caught or not caught you just have to juggle what do you need to find and how much time is left mm-hmm. have you found anything cool so far because you found a lot of cool things so far that might suffice if you have nothing to show for your time now you're thinking about gambling mm-hmm. and like what's your risk tolerance like on this do i risk looking like a fool do i risk saying hey i'm here but i need to find something i have six hours left I'm going to do it. Right. And so now it's a real human decision. Yeah. Um, and is that valuable? Then my identifying view is valuable. It, it absolutely is valuable. I had this one pen tester who did not do a very good job. And um, for a number of reasons, actually, it wasn't really completely their fault, but it was also their fault. And, uh, and the customer comes back. They're like, on the previous assessment, the one that I did, you had sent like these millions of requests over like multiple days. And cause I had a bunch of processes of running the background and kind of some of it was slow, some of it was fast. And then the other pen tester didn't bother with any of that stuff because I had already tested it. And there's kind of like no point in redoing that. All of that testing that didn't, didn't net anything. It was like it was, a year apart. But, uh, no, it was, it was, it was a couple months away. Okay. Uh, so it was, it was really, and they, and they told us what parts of the code they had changed. So there wasn't very much delta between. There's no reason to do all this extra testing. But they're like, but the, this time you only spent, you know, like 10, 10 20 hours on it. Oh, and, you, and, you, and you only sent us like whatever, 50,000 requests as opposed to millions or whatever. And I'm like, oh, geez, okay. Just can you rerun all of these tests that are not going to find anything? <laughs> I'll even give you the commands. Just run them. And uh, like, customers are silly. You know, so even if you... Find something, okay, or let's say that someone detects you, for instance, or mm-hmm. let's say you're running automated scans they, over. They over, don't do that over, over the web, no and one like, text me. Come well, on. Well, like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's say that you're like really shotgunning the internet, and yeah. like you get hit by Cloudflare and Akamai and like Imperva. Um, I just jot those down in my database. It's like that one has these automated controls in place. Yeah, no bother. And then that's a burner IP, mm-hmm. and so I swap to a different IP and I check those out in a different way, yeah. maybe a little bit slower. Um, and I've got a database at the moment of most of the targets that I'm scanning, like all bug bounty targets. I think I'm up to about just things that I know are explicitly in scope about 220,000 hosts. Not all of them resolve. You know, a lot of them are, are AWS instances and, and they're sure. not all this one, they're ephemeral. Um, but in the first pass, you know, I've got some responses that are like, okay, Cloudflare is blocking you and Perv is blocking you. And I just jot that down. These are things protected by automation, which tells me as a human, go there because everyone who's going wide is likely skipping it or they're blocked and that's not worth their time. Mm-hmm. It's about going where you think other people are going to be missing. Funny. I thought you were going to say the exact opposite. I thought you were going to say, Oh, there's no pop, no problem. Oh, there. Not at I'm all. just going to go around it. Interesting. No, so, so, you, so I consider that I like you do the, all the WAF the passes. Well, so first I'm identifying where the WAFs are like mm-hmm. block me on this one. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Tell me all the things that Cloudflare is behind all the, okay. So now I have all these customers, these clients who are protected by Cloudflare. Cool. Same thing for Akamai, same thing for Imperva, whatever it may be. Um, do another test, maybe a little bit slower and see if that gets blocked. And now I know bandwidth thresholds for different ones. And I keep going down that list until I find the ones that are always blocked by automation. And that's where I put my manual efforts. Everything else is going wide, you know, trying to identify. um, And actually I got this idea from you several years ago 
Mm. Uh, funnily enough, you planted the seed that you thought supply chain attacks would be the next biggest thing. And I was like, oh, that is so easy to do. Get a personal asset inventory of all the targets that are out there. And the next time Log4j happens, you just have your script ready to go. Yes. You already have your list of everything that's online that is, well, you have to do this uh, with some protections in mind, of course, right? So the targets that I'm talking about are all things that I have confirmed have a bug bounty program and that thing is okay to be scanned. <laughs> Caveat there. Not just scanning everything and or, hacking or everyone. Or an existing customer. Or, or an existing customer. Yeah, I, have, I have some uh, approval to uh-huh. do this thing uh-huh. and you have to be sure that you have that. But once, once you do, you know, there's literally thousands of targets that you can enumerate thousands more subdomains that are going to have thousands more services. Your database gets big pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And well, especially because they go to Cloudflare. So they have the old IP address. Yeah. And so you just bypass that totally. entirely. So log all this information, mm-hmm. uh, search it internally when you find something that's worth it. And I, I, I built this thinking about your t- off literally like off the shoulder comment of like, Oh yeah, supply chain attacks are going to be the next big, big thing. I'm like, absolutely. Imagine if someone had this inventory in place when log 4j happened and they just sent the payload to everyone yep. and just sat there watching their listener for everything that pinged back. I promise you I've had very tens of thousands of results. I've had very long conversations with the U S government about this exact issue. Um, it is very gnarly and they don't have a solution for it. So no one, in fact, the WAF vendors, I've even talked to them about it. I'm like, so what would you do? Let's say I have an exploit and I give you the, the payload and the patch at the same time. What would you do? I, I know what they do. <laughs> can, can I give you my answer? Yeah. They would probably take a hash of that signature and just block just for that hash. And anyone who's generating yeah, payloads is going to put dynamic content. But it's, it's worse than you're thinking. Um, it takes a certain amount of time to update the backplane. Oh, that's true. So if you have propagate it to all the nodes. Mm-hmm. So even if you have, if you have it at the exact same millisecond, the attacker will always win. Mm. Yeah. So you're, you're definitely definitely right. That's absolutely true. <laughs> so, which means you, you need to think about a new paradigm. You need to be thinking about WAFs are the things you use to predict, to stop things that are known vulnerabilities, not the unknown vulnerabilities. Nope. Those you're not, that's just not, or not the kind of unknown vulnerabilities for which you can't have a predictive type of signature. That's a whole other ball game. One benefit that I do like to WAFs, and I'm usually pretty anti-WAF. I, I hate when people... Really? Uh, I, I think they well, have a lot of value. When it's used as an excuse to band-aid the problem and not fix the actual thing, and then the security people inside have to be like, okay, that thing, if the WAF ever goes down, this is a big hole. Um, you, you yeah, know, that, but that's... I've lived that life, and, and it keeps you up at night. But that, that's, that's so many different things. Well, what I like about the WAF is that usually the security team gets control of that. And so you have the application logic that the engineering team is making you have a different infrastructure team maybe they're security related maybe not but the WAF usually the security team can say hey I control that thing Mm -hmm. and so you're aware of a new payload that comes out we block it right then and there you're usually fairly confident that's not going to block any real customers Hmm. usually you still have to do some some nuance and make sure that you're not going to block any like yeah these days have gotten quite a bit real ingress yeah yeah yeah. but that is I think that's the only thing that I'm really a fan of with that Mm. Uh, because I've seen the other side where it's used as an excuse to not fix things too terribly much when the engineering team says oh we have a WAF you know it keeps me up at night yeah well it does but also it works I mean as long as there isn't a bypass and that's a big question mark Um, but as long as there's not a bypass if it's like this has got to be a digit or something and now it can't be a SQL injection or whatever it's got to be a number that is incredibly good robust piece of code you're not you're not going to you're not going to fail on that one. It is absolutely better than nothing, but security teams still need to diversify what their defenses are. And the whole reason you diversify anything is to protect you against what you don't know. So what if they don't have a security team? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's Route City. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where I think WAFs really do provide value. Because there's so many companies out there who can't, as you said, get the Google employee who's, you know, yep. an expert and a coder and can talk, you know, and can make business cases make sense and whatever. You know, that's very we're talking about rarefied air to the point where I don't think they even exist anymore. I don't think guys like you and I exist anymore. I think we're a very um we're a minority amongst a minority and decreasing over time. Um, and I'm not exactly sure. There's probably a lot of confounding factors that go into that. Um, I've got some theories, but if, if that's I, I don't, true, I, I don't see a lot of people who are 20 and then 30 years younger than I am who look like you and I do in the sense where they're talking in this way. Hmm. Um, I see them th- still thinking about cross-site scripting or still thinking about SQL injection, but not talking about in the business context and then definitely not knowing how to code or knowing how to do the, uh, like how to manually connect to a port or, you know, manually configure something like that. I think that's kind of going away, which means we need more, some kind of automation. You know, I certainly see when you, when you are dead and gone and I am dead and gone, who's going to take our place. That's very concerning to me because I don't see 20 years, 30 years younger. There's some, I'm not saying they don't exist, but not like when you and I were coming up. Yeah, we're like, going to be dealing with quantum internet and it's not going to be a problem. <laughs> It'll all be solved. <laughs> uh, solved and broken at the same time. Um, you know, one of the things that I do see in this space, at least as far as like newer people coming in, I feel like, you know, the pyramid of what security talent is, is insanely bloated at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say there's anything bad there, but I feel like there's a I think, large I think there is something bad about that. majority of people here who are like, they're still in that intro phase and either the industry has kept them there or they're working at jobs who say you need 10 years of experience for this technology that's only been out for five years. And no. like, they're not really getting a chance I, to up level or they don't have the right people to ask questions to. That's the one. And that's it right like, there. I'm fortunate enough to know you. How many people can like, yeah. like I've called you to yeah. say, Hey, can I take, should I take this job? Yeah. And yeah. That is one, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> and two, not everyone has that kind of mentorship. I try to go out of my way to like be overly friendly with anyone junior just to pay that forward. Yeah. And when you're talking about like as you the should. user eyes, that's awesome. That is our responsibility in this but, but, place. But what I'm seeing is guys like us move to entrepreneurship. We become directors, we become vice presidents, we start our own thing, we move out of the industry, we retire. I mean when I started, there was four people doing what I was doing. Um, Luda Yu, Umbrella.name, Michael Zaluski, and me. We don't know what happened the first two. They kind of disappeared, probably went to the Chinese military. And uh, Michael Zaluski just decided he was done. He's quit. So I'm it. Which means there is nobody older than I am doing what I'm doing. No one. There's no one who's been doing this longer than I am now. No one. And so if you, if you extrapolate 20 years from now, I'm retired sitting on the beach somewhere, enjoying my life or whatever I'm doing. Probably yeah. not that, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Probably still like, oh, I can still go. Your port scanning uh, satellites at that beach. <laughs> uh, that's long ago happened. But uh, <clears throat> I get some funny stories. But uh, when I'm long out of this industry and now you're it, how many people are behind you who have that level of skill? I think what's happening is they're getting promoted very quickly they're moving into these very senior roles and now they're training people, but they didn't ever have your training. They never came up with your level of expertise and where they were in the trenches for years. And that's, that's what worries me. You know, I want to, I want to be a little, little humble here. Um, oh, when we were talking now. about, no, when you we were talking <laughs> about like, you know, going back and like, you, you know, I was an early manager 
at White Hat. Mm-hmm. Um, I was probably an IC for, I guess, just two years before I was sent to Belfast where I built an entire yeah, you EU built, TRC. You built a huge team. Right. But... Yes, you're so humble. I was, put, <laughs> I was put there because I was a good hacker. Yeah. Not because I was a good manager, not because I was a tested good leader. And those are completely different muscles to flex. And uh, when I think about well, it. Well, come on now. Well, really, when I reflect no, on it. I disagree with my friend. If you had just been a good hacker, they would not have put you in that role. They knew that you knew how to speak to clients. You knew how to speak to other employees and empower people and train them. They had a lot of confidence in you. And I know that because I was on the other side of the conversation. I I appreciate that. Even so, I think that any one of us in this sort of space needs to be able to reflect on who we were and, you know, what would you do differently? I'm embarrassed about the decisions that I made back then. I would make completely different ones today. I'm fortunate to have eight more years of experience in the space and I've had the opportunity to make some mistakes leading other, some people. What what kind of regrets do you have? Um, I had one person. Okay. So the biggest regret that I have is like the, lesson I'm most happy to have learned that I never want to make again. I lost a high contributing employee because I was focusing on the problem people. And this person, you know, rock star sort of engineer, always had their head on straight, was doing really cool things. And when I had time to put effort towards someone, I was like, that person has their stuff solved. I'm going to work on these people who are problem people who need to be helped or made better or um, have a problem solution, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And the one who put in their two weeks notice was my rock star because that person wasn't feeling valued or getting attention or being up-leveled or being supported to grow. He's prima donnas. Well, I mean, (laughs) at the same time, I was sad I lost that person. And I was shocked that that was the person that I lost and not my problem people. Um, Very expensive mistake to make. I'm glad that I made it once and I was able to learn from that. But I hope that anyone who's put in a responsibility of being a leader is able to recognize that. Yeah, I don't want you to be overly um, humble because I think you're you are one of the few hackers who can actually talk to people. So many of them are code specific or really focused on what they're working on and they can't pick their head up and look around and see, Oh, there's probably some business people I need to talk to or some salespeople who could Thank probably use some training. No, really it's, it's not a minor difference between you and um, the average person who might uh, just be averagely good at computers or, you know, figure it out and kind of work in the, work in the mines until they figure it out. Um, And as a result, it needs people like you. You have to be the next group of people, the next cohort um, beneath me. Like I was called level one or whatever, you know, whatever level I was at, you're level two. You, you need to do the next thing for the next group of people. And if it isn't you, it's not going to be me. I'm not the one training them. So it has to be you. It has to, or someone just like you. <laughs> I am putting that entire paragraph on a shirt and I'm wearing it to death for three weeks. Uh, thank you. That, that, is, that is wildly generous. It has to be you. Um, it has and, to and be And point, point where it was received. Who, who else would it be? Like, I mean, name yeah. me somebody else with, you got tons of bona fides both in the technical red teaming side and blue teaming and you can speak to people and you run a company I, I mean, do have, these are these are not minor hurdles to have overcome. I do have a name that I would throw out there, and this is a person that I really respect, uh, someone that I look up to. Life has kind of taken us different ways. I actually met the guy by doing a CTF and just happened, you know, he sat down next to me in the hallway, and we're like sitting with our backs against the wall while other people are walking in front of us, uh, a guy named Jason Haddix. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah Jason's Jadix, awesome. one of my favorite people in the world. Yeah. I love watching where his career has gone to. Um, him and I don't typically talk too ter- terribly much anymore, but 
also I think is in the same sort of area of influence. I and completely agree. People look up to him, but, and it's one of the brighter stars. But to the follow. fact that you have to think of a person, a person's name, you can't go like, oh, there's like fifty people immediately off the top of my head, and oh, there's another fifty. Well, oh, and there's another fifty. There might be. Maybe I'm not no. the social butterfly who knows. No, it. no, no. Now, no. I'm a little. I'm getting back into the the space of who's who in infosec in a sense. I've been I out think, for a little bit. I think I might be right. There might be just fifty and another fifty and another fifty. It's well, not going to be. 10,000 or 100,000 because the problem is I think people are saying you're going to hire your way out of this problem and I just don't see it. I don't see it. I definitely it. don't see that either. I don't see it, which means it has to be automation. It has to be somebody like you who's smart enough to have all of those bruises and all of those like warts in your history where you've tried all those things to build that next okay, so piece of automation, whatever it is. If that's the reality, uh, because from my lens of that, I don't want to do automation unless it excites me. Like if that's my day job and it's not something I'm already passionate about, it's like, all right, can we, can we put a different business focus in front of me? How do we handle that sort of thing? Because know. you know, it's finite resources and finite effort. And yeah. And I think a lot of people get burned out in this industry too. So probably, you know, I'm at the point now where it's like, I want to go to something exciting and maybe I'm like making less money for a few years doing that, like figuring stuff out. But maybe. I don't you know, I think everyone gets to that little soul searching point at some point and maybe I'll go back in the future. Um, you know, you live and you learn what's missing from the industry. And that's actually one of the reasons why I tell anyone who looks up to me as a mentor, if I can call myself that, of course uh, you to, are. Come to, on. to constantly be interviewing, even if you're happy at your current I love space how humble because, you are, but come on, man. Well, <laughs> thank you. You've inspired um, a lot of people. I know that they've, they've told me that. I appreciate that. Um, I always tell people, uh, who I'm working with to constantly be interviewing at other companies, even if they're happy with their current gig, because in your current gig, you're going to be very siloed into what y'all's problems are and not where the rest of the industry is going. And so I like to tell people, you know, assuming they're hiring, you know, it's a little bit of a down market right now, mm -hmm. but uh, no matter where you're working and no matter what discipline of security that you're in, just constantly ask around and see what people are hiring for and what problems they're trying to solve for, because that's going to give you as someone who's trying to elevate your career, once a sense of the next thing coming up, you know, uh, four years ago, maybe three years ago, it was probably all about like, we need a security engineer who can deploy Kubernetes. And if you're not someone who's like really versed in Docker or really versed in containers, you might not know that's the next big thing coming out. Mm -hmm. And I say this because I was someone who slept on cloud security when AWS was taking over and mm -hmm. GCP was coming up. You know, I just didn't go out and learn that. I was like, that's not going to be a big thing. Oof. Oof. That was a mistake to make. Yes, and then five years later, everyone I'm working with knows a whole lot about AWS. And I'm just like, do I really have to go back to the foundations, like back sure to basics? On, and, and so I did, and it was painful. Um, and, I, and I think everyone kind of gets that wake up call once in a while where it's like, you know, if I don't stay on top of this game, the, the people who are just graduating from college are going to be right there. You know, GitHub was the same thing. When I graduated with my CS degree, you know, we were using SVN. There was no GitHub back then. Oh, I was using ClearCase even before that. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> Oof. GitHub comes out. But I work with the guy who wrote ClearCase. So that I, oh, that's a little bit of a, bit of a difference. <laughs> uh, but GitHub comes out. Students start graduating, knowing how to do PRs and repo management and all that sort of stuff. And if you're in industry and you have one job that's doing one thing and you don't know how to do that, you have to find time to learn it. Mm -hmm. And in security, that never stops. Mm -hmm. You're always learning something new, and Absolutely. and the day job is or often or sometimes you're, or you're losing, yeah, you're, it's, it's losing like, ground. Do you know how to do a Ruby code review? No, you're doing one on Monday, mm -hmm. and so guess what you're doing all weekend, mm -hmm. learning everything about insecure developments for Ruby or so insert language here. That that is the upside I think of consulting right there. You just said it. Yeah. You will learn more doing consulting than you would ever learn in a traditional blue team job where you have this, a set set of things you're going to have day in day out. It's rote. It's always the same. It's the same groups of technologies. 
maybe that one sales guy insults something weird, but other than that, you're Absolutely. you're pretty much the same stuff all the time. When you're in consulting, you're like, what is this random thing? <laughs> I've never even heard of this technology. Or like, I thought that thing was out of like commission like 20 years ago. Where did right. this come from? Digital Fox Pro? Is that a real thing? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the Fortran assessment to come in. Oh, it will eventually Probably. do it long enough. I really. Well, I've uh, thought about it. If I was going to get back into coding, it's like, what do I want to learn? Ruby? Go? Like, no, we're going to go learn Cobalt. <laughs> because like when, when COVID happened, wasn't there issues with like the social security system for the United States government? Yeah, and like it was, I don't know. They didn't have enough experts on hand who knew how it was coded in. And, and you know, I've heard this conversation a bunch, but like, no one knows how to learn that stuff anymore. Yeah, but now you have ChatGPT, so it will be able to get you up in speed like instantly. So you know, it probably doesn't have the Stack Overflow wrong examples of Cobalt and Fortran <laughs> to, to poison the data pool with yet. Give it yeah, time. That's true. Tomorrow afternoon. All right. So um, I know you and I both have some opinions around people who talk about security as opposed to our actual experts in it. Call them the charlatans of the industry. Hmm. Um, Thinking about like the Errata page, uh, Jericho. Yeah, uh, that's that's how that's that's where my mind goes instantly. But I'm sure that you have kind of a long tail of thoughts on that. But how do you tell the difference between somebody who actually knows what they're talking about versus somebody who just talks about it? You know, there's the uh momentum cyberscape image that they generate every year that has like thousands and thousands of security vendors on it. Um, and it's, I think it just says like the mm -hmm. you know, momentum cyberscape or something like that. Um, just to give you a sense of like how many people are proposing solutions to problems and you see all the little buckets of which ones they're in. And most of them still expand out towards other areas. So one, there's a lot of knowledge possibilities. Again, when I talked about that T, you got your depth and your breadth. The breadth is huge. It is miles yeah. and miles wide. It wraps around the earth. Yeah. And so it's really easy to find someone who is either an expert in another field or just knows a little bit in that other field that you don't know anything about. And then they buzzword bingo you and you're just like, yeah, that person's been doing that for 10 years. And really they haven't. Um, I think that it really becomes a problem when they start talking with a lot of confidence about problems that they're not intimate with and start providing guidance for the sake of filling the noise or filling the gap in the room. Um, and I've seen this a lot with BSO or actually put, put, put it back this way. Um, think about all the CISOs right now who are basically Cisco network engineers in the nineties. I mean, well, and, okay, but and, if, if they're CCIEs, they're legit good. Uh, that's that's a that's a real thing. But CCNAs. Well, so what I'm talking about, you know, and I've seen this before, where um, I have a very specific definition of what application security is because I feel like I've been doing it for a decade. You sure have. And there was someone with a strong networking background who had a different view of what application security was. That to, is, they're probably not qualified. To the tune of like <laughs> Adobe Acrobat Reader is an application. And I'm uh, like, yes, technically that's an application in of. Windows, but I guess that's a binary in Linux. And and uh, yeah, it it's not a web application. Mm -hmm. um, it's a different application, but they didn't understand the terminology the same way. Mm. And I wouldn't say that's necessarily a charlatan, but I think that you get in these spaces where there's a lot to be responsible for and I think you recognize, okay, here's the area that I'm good at. Here's the things that I've expanded to personally. And there might be other areas that I'm just not knowledgeable about in. And so there is some level of like, that person might know what they're talking about. I have to be careful about how I have, how I handle this conversation. Else you could, you know, really rub someone raw who's mm -hmm. really good in their field. Maybe they're just not communicating properly. You know, you kind of make me think there's this, um, 
once upon a time, you could be an expert in virtually everything having to do with a web app. I mean, you could be an expert in the operating system. It's not that complicated back then. Yeah. Uh, you could be expert in the uh, it's a, a, Apache. That was it. <laughs> I was going to say Apache the website. No, just Apache. just Apache. Just Apache. That was all that was back then. Uh, you could be an expert in Perl. Because uh, that was all that existed at so the time. Guy, aren't you? Yeah, we, well, yeah, not so much <laughs> these days. Uh, and HTML and CSS barely existed. It really wasn't a thing back then. You could do that. That was a thing. You could actually be an expert in all of those things. And and really, an actual expert, you'd understand all the configuration, all the, the weirds in, ins and outs. You could really do that. Now, there is so much complexity. I mean, it is just a monstrous. Like half the things don't even run on software. They're like physical devices now. They're hardware, they're ASICs, they're like deeply mm-hmm. integrated in all kinds of things. They're pulling from caching servers. This thing over here is some weird WAF thing that does some other weird, you know, routing of things to an application pool. There's run- this one's running Java, that one's running C, that one's running go that one's running some ancient version of pearl or you know whatever and they're all doing random things they're all connecting through some front end that does some other random thing running 20 different technologies you know and three different versions of jquery and no one's going to be an expert on all that no one so separating that right that like that 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 type of charlatan says i know how web apps work you don't like you no one does (laughs) i wouldn't (laughs) say that's really that's, really that's a charlatan a though. That might be someone embellishing, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. That, that's my point. Yeah, okay, gotcha. But, but the real charlatans are the ones who come in and they're like, yeah, I know. Like the actual snake oil peddlers? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you've run into them. It's kind of an occasional thing for me, but. Uh, for me, it's more about being warned that they're there. And so like, I see this the most when I go to RSA. And there's some good tech talks there and there's others who are just spewing buzzword after buzzword after buzzword. And like, none of it makes sense together. You know, I think the biggest thing that gets me (laughs) is when someone says like, Oh yeah, like I'm very excited about cyber. And I'm like, cyber, what? Like (laughs) cybersecurity, cyber crime, cyber espionage, (laughs) cyberpunk. Like it's like when someone's telling you about their fetish, man. Well, it's like, (laughs) it's like when someone says like, Oh, what do you do? It's like, I do computers. Yeah. IT software development. Do you play games? Do you build them? It's like, it's that, that's the biggest tell for me. Actually. It's like, okay, you, maybe you want to be in the industry and you like kind of need to learn what area you want to go or in, they like, want to get out or that. But like <laughs> when I hear the cyber, I'm just like, all right, who said that? And, and to what degree do you want to talk about cyber? I like the information superhighway myself. That's uh that's my go-to. No, I actually, I don't even know how to describe what I do anymore. I don't know. I mean, I mean, how do you say, what, what do you, what, how do you say what you do? Well, what I say that I do, it depends on who I'm talking to, right? Sure, some random. You know, someone you had a bus stop. You know. It's a computer security. Okay. Just computer security, and if they want to know more, I'll tell them about it. But I, I'm not the first person to be like, oh, I'm a hacker. Like, look at me, hacker. I'm wearing the shirt that says hacker. Um, that's what I like to do. That's my favorite part of the job. But I'll just say computer security. Mm-hmm. And if they want to know more, I'll be very excited to tell them in what area mm-hmm. and where it's valuable and maybe try to connect that with something that's part of their actual life, depending on if they go further into it. And if they say, hey, I want to do that. And I'm like, have you heard of bug bounties? Have you heard about... But, uh, you're, but you're actually an entrepreneur, if you think about it. That's another way. You could have answered the question, I'm an entrepreneur. And they I guess some of that comes down to what you like. What I collect, connect my personality with, like identity-wise. Sure, like sometimes like, you know, what we do isn't who we are. But I've always had that kind of like curious mindset about, okay, how can I take this thing and misuse it? And I, that's very like core to my nature. And 
that was me before I fell into this industry. Um, you know, my father was a mechanic, so I grew up in the garage, literally like taking things apart with wrenches, putting it back together, that, seeing what I can make. That'll help your EE stuff. Right um, there. You know, it's funny that you say that, you know, when I talked about like the seven years of computer science, it was actually a uh, four years of CS not passing in four years. <laughs> I switched to electrical engineering for three and then I went back and just like finished off the CS. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a little, little bit of both there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I've always had the right mentality for it before knowing that there was even industry around this. And so, so when I came into it, I was like, oh, this just fits. This is great. Finally found the spot where I belong and then I just ate it up. Mm-hmm. Is it a cultural thing or is it the technical? I do you like, like the people and you like the technology? Well, I, I've never really felt like the most technical person. Even still, I'm looking for like the adult in the room. And like, I'm sitting across from you. So like we're squared, um, but like, you know, imposter syndrome is a real thing and I still face it to this day. I think a lot of people do. The culture makes it easier because I feel like I get along with people, especially since like being nerdy is really out of the closet these days. Uh, growing up, like I was a closet gamer. I would never tell anyone that I played video games. You know, my brother's one of the biggest Twitch streamers in a different game. Uh, and so it's really nice that we can kind of like have those discussions out openly. It's just like, yeah, this is like the level of nerd that I am. And if you don't like it, I don't care. Like, I feel like that was a little bit harder back in the day, at least for me, it was personally, or, you know, you'd feel embarrassed or not cool. And, uh, something about the culture, I think in the InfoSec community really makes that acceptable and easier to talk about. And it's one of the main reasons I love DEF CON. Mm. Um, sure. It's a little bit of a character of what it was maybe 20 years ago. You know, we're at, like, what's the number at this one coming out? I have no idea. Yeah. I don't even know anymore. Um, I know where my badges stopped because uh, I stopped going when COVID happened. But this is going to be the it's, first one that's been gonna, back in four it's years. It's going to be something close to 30. I don't know what the real number is, though. Um, so all it does for me is, like, it's a reason to see all, all my old friends who have gone to different areas of the country and now come back for this one 25, thing. 25, maybe? Jeez, yeah. I, wish it, I, knew, I wish I knew the right, answer to that. But, like, <laughs> it, it's so unimportant what that number is. It's more yeah. about what it means. And it's like, okay, I get to be around a culture that I think is kind of fun, people who are exciting, another subject of people who are really interested in the same technology that I'm in, and let's just see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, the coolest conversations happen in the hallways. And I think that's when you really like kind of connect with folks and you're like, all right, this level of nerdy, mm-hmm. I, I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to feel supported. You get this one awesome week of getting curious together and then you take that back home. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I, that's my view on it. No, least. no. I, I, I love that you still have that magic in you. Um, I felt like that changed a little bit, probably about 10 ish years back. I've um, heard that from people. It's still new and bright to me. No, but um, specifically at DEFCON, that not uh, not in general. Like I still feel like there's people like you. It's still got the magic, right? That like that's why I like hanging out with you. I like see, I like seeing that. That's what you make out of it. But uh, but like I would go to these conferences, uh, DEFCON in particular, since you mentioned it, and I would try to talk to people. Like I like really try to talk to them. In fact, I was talking uh, about something, and I actually messaged uh, Jeff, or, or I think I forget how this happened, but I basically said like I have this very specific thing I want to talk about anyone want to talk about web app sec come to this place and defcon the conference retweeted it like go to this place if you want to talk Full to our snake about this thing not a single person showed up You're kidding me i must not have saw this week. <laughs> well i think it's a mix of people being too busy um and having other things going on etc or just not really being that interested in security and wanting to do the social aspects of it so what year was that I don't know. You'd have to go back. Um, I don't know. Probably 10 years ago. The harder just remember the better. Cause I think now it's like what? 40, 50,000 people. Mm-hmm. Like I hope I can see most of my friends. I might spend more time standing in line and just like shuffling up, shuffling past strangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go now, I like to hole up wherever like the fun CTF is. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I do a quick scan of the room, go back to what I'm doing, 
An hour later, I look around again. If anyone else hasn't moved, I go sit at that table. Mm -hmm. And like, those are the kind of people that I want to chat with. Right. Yeah. They're still there. They're still passionate. Yeah. Like how else do you find the people who are like really doing, doing the stuff? Mm -hmm. There's so many people there. Like you're lucky if you get a chance to, uh, you know, find your friends again. That's interesting. I like that tactic. Um, yeah, I've found myself uh, also being on the edge of rooms, uh, kind of trying to find people I know who are doing interesting things. Like when Dan Kaminsky was still alive, for instance, I'm like, oh, there we go. Someone I can talk to about, you know, some deep DNS stuff or, you know, I see Robert oh. Lee. I'm like, okay, some deep TCP IP stuff. Like, you know, like, like someone who's an actual expert or Robert Graham or somebody like, mm-hmm. Oof. like I know I'm going to, st- that's like yeah, all trailblazers f- five hours of my life i'm looking at him right in the face <laughs> like, and that's a solid crew to be around here too. Here, here we go <laughs> now so from my perspective it's like okay i'm i'm not someone who's pioneered in the same ways that you guys have i've read everything that y'all have done and i'm a good i'm a person who executes pretty strongly in those areas you know there was one time where i found something unique and i was like oh man i got it like my first like full vulnerability class and it was just cross-site tracing mm-hmm. but i found it on my own mm-hmm. and i started like googling for it and i couldn't find anything and then Sure enough, there's an article from Jeremiah Grossman in 2005. <laughs> and I'm just like, I thought I finally had like a concept. A Mick Klein was my version of that. Mick Klein found everything before everyone else found it. It's like, why is this guy's always this another, yeah. another thing? Like you find some ancient article he'd written. And, and so what I find but, there uh, are other people who are also in the weeds with me, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to get better at what you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, you, you find a discipline, you start going deep into that and, like one of the things that I don't do particularly well, well is like malware reverse engineering, but that's yeah. okay because that's I've got friends yet. who do that really well anyways. And I'd rather be the better AppSec guy. Yeah. And so, you know, you make buddies with them. And when you have a project that overlaps, you reach out to your connections and totally learn something new really quickly and then go about your day. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, uh, I've had a number of situations where I found, I found the vulnerability it's there, but I don't know how to exploit it. Like, and that's okay. It's like, uh, like I'm sitting here, I'm running commands on a web app and it's dumping memory. I'm like, okay, I need somebody to like do something with this yep. memory. Like, how do you find if that's exploitable or not? It takes, well, takes some time. It, it's exploitable, but I don't know yeah, what to it do with it. Time to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you've got a stack trace. That's great. But yeah. like, do you know the architecture of the system too? That's right. really hard to figure out with web applications. That's I mean, right. now you have a finite small set to really guess. Well, but it's, you it's, have to tailor it's like a thousand K every it. time it output it. I'm like, Oh, putting, stitching this together and knowing what it means. Like, there's somebody who's better at this, the memory management and digital right. forensics than I am. Like, woof, that's a whole other ball game. But I think that's okay. Yeah. Um, there's so much to be an expert at. You don't even need to be an expert at any of it. Just find an area that you like, go deep on it, <laughs> enjoy the ride, share what you learn. Mm-hmm. And you'll find yourself with other people who do the same and you're going to learn quicker that way. So one thing that we had talked about a little before was um, how you see leadership in general working and how they should be prioritizing things. You know, yeah. I don't know if you want to kind of dig into this a little bit. Oh yeah. Um, I love doing what I can to be a good leader when I have the responsibility to do so. Um, and leadership and management is wildly different, especially in the security spaces. Um, well, I guess not security, but more like engineering as a whole. I feel like we get a lot of people who are good engineers. They're put into management positions. I was one of them. Mm-hmm. And then you think that because you're a good engineer that you're going to know how to manage people. And that's completely different. That's com- So being a good manager is completely different than being a good engineer. Being a good leader is completely different than being a good manager. And I think a lot of us really make mistakes along the way because we're not taught how to do either of those things. Most of us are learning on the fly anyways. You know, I, I got really good at my craft, so now I'm a good engineer. 
And people say, hey, that person can really execute well. Let's put them in charge of a team. Well, what if you're not good at conflict resolution? What if you're not good with <laughs> managing priorities? What if you still still really want to be the bright shining star in the room and then you take up all the cool stuff for yourself and you suffocate everyone else? Uh, this was me in my first management job. I still was addicted to being like the shining engineer who could solve all the problems and really like the pats on the back afterwards. It took a while before I realized like that's not the win condition of being a manager. The win condition of being a manager is making sure that everyone has what they need to get their job done and is supported along the way. A good leader is the person who's looking out for what's ahead of that. How do I uplevel your career? How am I managing what problems mm -hmm. uh, are bothering you during work? And, and sometimes you need a personal relationship for that and maybe they don't even want it. And being a good leader is recognizing when that conversation is not worth having. Like how do you manage um, or how do you embrace the idea for them to fail successfully? So it sounds like you still do some mentorship. Um, Where I can, you know, I think I, I've, I've learned from a lot. What's your philosophy on that? How, like who, who do you mentor? What do you try to get them to oh, do? Anyone who wants to talk to me. I'll, I'll yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, and, but I, but I've, been able to benefit from good mentors. And so I feel a responsibility to give it back. Um, and that's really what the InfoSec security, the InfoSec community should be all about. I think we all stand on the shoulders of giants here. Very few of us are pioneering new things ourselves. We're learning, we're doing a lot of taking. Mm -hmm. How do you give back? Well, you either discover something new and cool and share that, but not all of us are researching 24 seven. At the very least, you can share back some wisdom mm -hmm. and that is free. That's just a choice to make. Yeah. Um, you know, I see this a lot with people who I'm just talking with on Twitter and like my Twitter account is mostly InfoSec related, but you'll see a lot of folks making just real boneheaded statements about, uh, oh, why developers can't fix this easy thing. And it's like, oh, you just, you just don't have that person to tell you how hard it is, <laughs> or you've not tried it yourself yet. And that's, you know, we were all young at one point. We were yeah. all, I'm going to yank that network cable out of the wall. So mm -hmm. the thing's not vulnerable anymore. Do you have a job the next day? Maybe not. Maybe that wasn't the right card to play. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, create an entire team of engineers who hate security, which makes the next conversation for the next security person a little bit more difficult. Mm. We got to do some, some patching of the relationship. Um, so as far as like myself with mentoring, um, anytime I get a chance to talk to someone who just wants to tell me about their situation, where they are in their career, what they're looking for. If I have any sort of tidbits of advice where, you know, maybe I've been in that space or I've thought about it, or I know someone who's done the same thing, I'll try to share what I can that, that pushes them along or at least gives them a grain of salt of something to think about. Obviously everyone's situation is personal, mm -hmm. but being a good engineer, completely different than being a good manager, completely different than being a good leader. And I think it's rare to be all three of those. You can be, but it doesn't happen naturally. And nothing irks me more than someone who's a poor manager also calling themselves a great leader. Mm -hmm. And like, they really tend to self label a lot, I guess like leader, like me, look at me, I'm the leader. Who are you leading? That is a label that someone else gives you, not one that you bestow upon yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do something, if you do leadership is actions and through doing those actions that resonate in a positive way, other people will see you as a leader. That's my own personal thought on it at least. And so I try to think about that whenever I'm misunderstanding what those may be and trying to understand, okay, am I focusing on being a good manager right now or am I focusing on being a good leader? And can I do both? And let's not conflate the two so I'm not congratulating myself for something that I haven't done. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of basic self-reflection, I think, to ask yourself, that's can great. you be better than you were yesterday? That's great. Uh, I, so I've mentored, I don't know, maybe half a dozen people now or so. Um, and my mentorship is pretty intense, um, like very deep, like trying to figure out exactly what they're trying to accomplish and 
really getting into all the details of their life because I think people are very, you know, three-dimensional. It's not just like, I have this career path and here's what I want. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. But also you have kids, right? <laughs> and kids are detracting from what you're trying to do, but not necessarily a bad thing. Just it's, it's, it's a, a different priority. it's a, it's a curveball. Yeah. We got to take that into account. Um, one of one example was a woman, um, and, uh, she brilliant ended up becoming a VP and like, she, she's done extremely well for herself, like really, really done well. But, uh, she was in a relationship where, um, she was required in her relationship to give her password to her significant other. And, okay. and me being completely ju- non-judgmental about the whole thing, but also finding it strange, uh, said, okay, well that's not going to work because now he has all your passwords to all this you know, very sensitive stuff. And what happens if you do break up eventually now he has access to everything. And so it became this very weird cat and mouse game of trying to explain how security works in a way that was visible to her, but not to her uh, husband at the time. And knowing full well that that was going to end up in divorce is this very complex, like array of things happening to help her become a VP of a company eventually, which is really all she was trying to accomplish. Um, and yeah, and in, indeed that did end up in divorce, although I would never trying to make that happen. It was just obvious that we're not happy. Um, you, you know, my brain immediately goes to how it's like, okay, you can have my passwords. You don't have my MFA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it takes both, right? You know what you know and what you have. Yes. Except for he wanted her cell phone, oh, yeah. username or password. And okay, all we're trying to get around no, 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 no. <laughs> Add the uh, no, no. iris biometrics. No, no, I know that that is yeah. kind of how it ended up going. You know, right? So here's here's better ways to have security in a way that's like it's now something you have as opposed to something that he might be able to log in remotely or whatever. It's a very, very, very complicated conversation. Um, took months and months of back and forth to get to the point where we had secure comms, even like just just well. able to communicate at all in a way that let's say I had something actually sensitive to give her. Not that I ever did, but you know what I mean? Like if there was like a bank account number that she had to have and no one else had it, it would be impossible to give it to her up to that point. I don't think that most people are prepared for that level of mentorship. I mean, that was months and months and months of very hard work to get her to the point where she was even capable of having a secure <laughs> communication. It almost um, seems like a fairly unique situation too. No, I mean, it, is, and like it is. Everyone's personal is. life is obviously complex and different and unique. Absolutely is. And so, you know, you did the best with what you could. And I bet that was like a lot of problem solving along the way. It's like, all right, well, what are we going to, what are we going to do here? And yeah. like, you really have to have your own come to Jesus moment with it. But, it, but it was, it was a useful thing for me to realize, A, I don't really want to do this a whole lot more times. <laughs> like that was a, enormously difficult. Oh my gosh. It was so hard. And, and also, you know, personal impairment, like she, she was putting herself in danger doing this. And it was, there was a lot, a lot going on there. Right. A lot, a lot more than meets the eye. So knowing that, did you feel you have a responsibility? Uh Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this was literally could be a life or death situation, not, not figuratively. Right. Um, and so, and I've been in plenty of situations where, if you make the wrong decision, people could get seriously injured or killed or whatever. Um, so that wasn't a new situation except for I was talking to the person who would get killed. Right. Um, and a very abusive relationship and all kinds of horrible things in her life. Uh, but in the end, I think I had a new respect for what it takes to bring, to up level someone from wherever they are to this next thing in their career, whatever it is. Right. And, 
I just don't know that I have a lot more of that in me. This this podcast is really nice because it gives me the ability to talk about these very deep, very sensitive conversations. I don't have to out this person. And we can have these really uh, amazing things that can be shared to, you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people, whatever. I can't do that one-on-one. So how do we get you to scale? That's my that's my biggest problem. How do we get you? Because you're willing to do it. You you are still mentoring, and God bless you for it. <laughs> but how? Hoping do we, it's not bad advice. Anyway. How do we how do we scale you? Well, so so it's interesting. Now the conversation has kind of pivoted to where uh, security meets privacy, and privacy can potentially meet cyberstalking, mm-hmm. which is a whole nother can of worms. You know, it's one thing to find a website and like identify vulnerabilities in it, or or a server that you can get a remote shell on, mm-hmm. but like. You can take that same sort of methodology to, okay, do I need to... Because if you attack the person, right. they have access to the website. Like Let's, <laughs> say, let's, let's say let's say I, I'm walking in a city. Do I need to have a Raspberry Pi in my backpack that's scanning for all Bluetooth devices near me and then diffing out the ones that are leaving mm-hmm. to tell me if someone is following me 10 steps away? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the world that we live in right now. Um, I, I actually looked into this at one point, and I think tile actually has the patent on that sort of thing. So you can't really like commercialize something for it. Mm-hmm. But like the concept of making a digital signature of someone it's like, okay, you who are walking in downtown, you have your watch on you, your phone, your tablet, a laptop, and they're all calling out to various Bluetooth and Wi-Fi endpoints. And there's one unique you that is doing that. And now you're surrounded by hundreds of other people who are doing the same thing. Well, those people are moving cars are driving by people are in buildings as you're walking by. But if you diff out all the noise, if someone is following you, one signature is going to be there. Mm-hmm. And let's say that stays the same or fairly constant. You can alert on it. Mm-hmm. And it is painful to think how that might be needed for someone. But it absolutely <laughs> is. Absolutely. Like think about how many just both single bad, women are like walking somewhere both, and want to know if they're being followed. Both bad guys and good guys alike or whatever, yeah. right? I mean, there's... And like we're just spitballing this, but you and I both know it's like easily accomplishable with a Wi-Fi pineapple or like a Wi-Fi pineapple or like a Raspberry Pi with open WTR and a few antennas and a good Saturday of coding. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, here's a, here's a tracker that anyone can have. Yeah. Yes. So how do we scale you? How do we get you in thousands, tens of thousands? Or do we switch to automation? Like what's the answer? Uh, there's no Cusco's GPT. Come on. No, no, no Come on. do that. We um, have, we have oh, to figure out some oh, way. Also, I don't know. I, I think it's about really just being a good person wherever you can, every step of the way, especially if you have eyes watching you. I mean, even when you're not, obviously, but you want to be a good example for people. And I think if you want to talk about scaling a person, you see who that person is going to influence and are they setting a good example or not? And so how do we get you to influence more people then? Well, I think it's one conversation at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And like that thing really happens organically a few people can get on a stage and like, like I'm not a politician or anything, but you know, they get on the stage and they rally people and they say like, Hey, you know, here's my vision. And like, I'm either going to stoke your anger to get it, or I'm going to stoke something that you really believe in and say, I'm the only person with that solution. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit personality driven. That's not really me. I'm more of someone who will do the thing behind the scenes. And then hopefully someone, you know, as we do the thing, if people like it, okay, we've walked the walk first and now we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. But a little bit that's personality driven, right? And so what I would hope to do is that people who I'm having conversations with, that I stoke the same sort of curiosity with them, empower them in the same way that I've been empowered and just, you know, pay that forward. Um, I actually had this conversation with someone uh, last week or, or two weeks ago. Um, just made a little, you know, the post on LinkedIn about like, hey, starting my own company and like, I'm thrilled to be doing this and very humbled and thank you everyone. And I had a guy reach out to me just because of the name of the company. He's like, hey, I think you'd, have, you'd be a good person to chat with just because like, I like your personality from what I've seen here. Mm-hmm. 
And so I had a chat with him about where he was in his career, just a random person on LinkedIn who pinged me. And this happens occasionally, but it was a great half hour chat about just like where this guy was, what problems he's facing. Um, I shared my experiences in that spot. And he said, thanks, man. If there's anything I can do, let me know. I'm like, the payment is to pay it forward. A few years from now, when someone pings you out of the blue, you take that Friday call at 3.30, you chat with them, you share your experience, and and that's the payment. Um, hopefully, if we all do that, it scales out. That's obviously a slow process, but if you do it everywhere you can, it should compound. That's the best answer I've got, and I'm not mm. sure if there is a good one, but there, there's I, the off-the-head off the thought. I, I love the idea. I'm not sure it's going to work, my friend. Maybe not, but trying is a lot of it. So we'll see. I, I don't think you would be here if it hadn't been for similar phone calls and your brute force and interest in it and excitement in it. I'm not sure that people coming up have that same interest and well, you excitement. Can't, you can't discount them. I, uh, I, I don't discount them. I don't discount them. I just think the problem is far larger than the amount of people we have in the pipeline multiplied times their excitement. I think it's growing at a, a much larger rate than that cohort. If I was to do the math in my head. Yeah. I think back to like the, the pyramid that I was just so talking about. so much garbage on the internet. Come on, man. That's <laughs> well, not going to change. It's not going to go away. It's just going to come prob- That's my point, right? We need, we need some massively larger group of people or automation or some, some kind of automation. So if that's the answer, let's say, not that you agree with me, but let's pretend like I'm right for a second. If that's the case, uh, why not work on creating the next best DAST or next best SAST or some way to chat GPT yourself uh, so developers don't have to know how to code. It just magically works or why not go that direction? Because your North Star was about protecting people, right? So So my counter to that is why anyone can't go do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, they don't know how. Come on. Well, I don't know how either. Um, yeah, but you are, I mean, the, I'm like, the kind of stock who could figure it out. <laughs> maybe, but you know, it's just like, it's the same thing as saying like, well, why don't you go learn, learn to fly an airplane? Anyone can, if you put enough time, if you put enough effort, we all have a finite amount of time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think some intersection of that is finding what gives you purpose, what makes you happy to get out of bed in the morning. Um, I don't want to build tools like that. If I'm being honest, I might have an idea that works. I think you have a lot of ideas that work too. Why aren't you building it? And it's because I think we want to influence in different ways in ways that bring us personal meaning. Um, I'm not the 10 Xer engineer, never have been. And so if I did that, it would be a lot of effort. I'd be tired. I'd burn out and it would hurt the whole way down. Mm. And I think I'm lucky enough to realize that by now. Um, haven't been in industry long, been in 12 years or people have been in 30 or 40 years, but I think I'm pretty fortunate to figure out which lines I don't want to cross now mm. because I've touched them and they hurt each time. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, we don't want to do that for a long time. <laughs> you know, I, if I touch the thing and it's hot and I say, ow, and I touch it again and I say, ow, I shouldn't do it a third time. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we'll test that as we get stronger and wiser or more bored, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's the case and you have the good idea, how do you get the thing out there? And I think it's about influencing the right people where that's the thing that they want to do. There are plenty of builders in the space who are really good at building. Maybe they don't know what the good thing to build is. And so, okay, hopefully this goes out on the internet. Thousands and thousands of people see it. It sparks that one bit of interest. Kind of like what you said with me about supply chain stuff. I don't think you thought that I was going to go home and start thinking about how to build that. No, but I knew someone would. Okay. And I think someone might do this exact same thing. And so the important thing is really talk about it and get it out there and seed that idea, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure has happened thousands and thousands of times over, someone's going to have the right implementation in mind. 
And then maybe if they build it, they remember where they got it from. Call back. That's not relevant to me. Probably I not. Mean, but but that can say like, hey, here's what I did. What yeah, am I missing? Yeah. And that, I think that's what someone wise would do. That, that does that does happen occasionally. Somebody like I read this one thing you wrote this one time years yeah. and years ago, and I built it. Like, you built it. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> and and <you laughs> that's know, amazing. I have my own areas like that where some where someone's talking about like pen testing something or building an exploit, and it's like, oh, I know what to do there. And so you know, give me a couple of hours. Here's the scaffold for it. And it's like, okay, this will work on these couple of different targets. Now, how do we scale that out? Well, I need someone else who knows a completely different skill set, or maybe this isn't mm-hmm. the right language to scale that out in. Yes. And so a lot of times I think it's about just like planting that seed and having a vision. Basically. Yeah. Share it, share it publicly and, and, and openly. And knowing how to communicate it. And that's why I think your skill is not um, universal. You have the ability to communicate your interests and excitement. A lot yeah, of people. I feel like I ramble a lot. <laughs> well, but, but I think your excitement is palpable. Like people can tell you like this. A lot of people are not that excited. They're like, oh, yeah, I got this job. I show up and then I leave. <laughs> and that's fine <laughs> for some coffee. people. You know, maybe, maybe they have three kids at home who are screaming and like, I don't know. That, that's a very different life than the one that I live where I'm a security professional. My partner is a very senior Python developer. And I have that person that I can ask a question to about scalability when I'm building something out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have any kids running around at home that affords me a very different amount of free time in my office to code away at something without distractions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm in my late thirties. That is not a common situation for people these days. Yeah. Our dinnertime conversations are very interesting. I'm talking about breaking she's talking about building. And (laughs) and I'm like, we have to secure it this way. And she's like, we have no idea how hard it is. You want to arm wrestle? Come on. And I'll lose that one too. All right, so uh, we're coming up on our time here. <clears throat> so I gotta, I gotta know how do people find you? Where where's your company coming online? I yeah, actually don't um, know much about how to find you actually. So uh, I haven't really advertised it publicly yet, but here we are. It's uh-huh. chaotic good information security, um, unapologetically nerdy from the get go. Mm-hmm. Um, really love the vision that we're providing here. Uh, you can find it on LinkedIn. My Twitter is Jonathan Cuscos. Not hiding anything. Please spell it. J o h n a t h a n K U S K O S and that Twitter account. Uh, although I'm not happy with where Twitter is going, that's still where I am at the moment. Um, <laughs> happy to talk with pretty much anyone about anything. That is my personal slash professional account. It's infosec mostly, but you know, I don't hide being a human there as well. And I hope others don't either. Those accounts are like kind of dry to me when they're just like, yeah, just, I don't know. Yeah. You got to put machine you, automation and whatnot. You got to put your meal on there too. If yeah. you don't, no one knows what you ate. Done that once or twice. <laughs> I might post it. I, I, I'm in Europe uh, next week cause we're right. traveling for a little bit. Uh-huh. Great. And then come right back to DEF CON. Well, Cusco's, this has been great. Thank you so much. <sighs> Thank I you, know buddy. we burned through three hours here, but I think it was, was fun. Really that yeah, it really wow. has. Uh, but it was worth it. I think, uh, we covered quite a bit of ground here. Um, so I actually kind of, eventually I want to get you back. Um, I want to hear after, after you've got this company up and running and really, really ramped up, I would give you the lessons learned in a year. I would love to hear like what happened. Um, uh, I've got, I've got a lot of thoughts on running consulting firms. And so I'm really curious. (laughs) Yeah, definitely (laughs) stepping into untested waters here. Um, mostly just trusting myself that we can figure out along the way and, I would be very sad if I never tried and could never tell myself where it would have otherwise failed. Otherwise it's just a big unknown. And I've wanted to do this for a long time and you know me, I'm very opinionated about what I think is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
And so, you'll work your ass off until you get it right. Such though that we're, yeah, we're going to put the effort forward and we'll see what happens. And if it fails, that's fine. But I hope to have a very good story from it if it fails. Mm-hmm. Well, best of luck, my Thank friend. You. Seriously. Well, I really hope if anyone could do it, I think it is you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Matthew.